And we are back for our last show before Christmas, before New Year's, our last show likely of uh, 2020, and good riddance to that year. Um, we, uh, we, we, are, we are back. We just finished our Los Angeles Film Critics Association voting. Tim and I are here with an interloper, a carpetbagger, <laughs> uh, a, 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 a familiar voice. Um, uh, contestant X, please introduce yourself. Well, I used to co-host this show. <laughs> He's the original the Coke. The show away from me. <laughs> I'm the new Coke. I'm the one that everybody yeah. hated in '88. And now, and, and and now in 2020, they love you. And 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 the old Coke was like, "What was that old guy? Who was that old guy? That idiot who used to host the show? What was his name? Ishkabibble." <laughs> so, welcome back, Mark. Um, you know what? Let's let's kind of uh, first get get some of the the sad stuff out of the way. In the last couple of weeks, we've had some passings in the business. Uh, two of them, I would say, premature, mm. and one of them, sort of. I mean, look, John Le Carre lived a good life and and has no regrets, and goes to meet his maker with uh, with a, a a very full um, body of work. But uh, we also lost Tiny Lister and Anne Reinking, both mm. of them shockingly young. Um, any thoughts, either of you? Uh, Tom, uh, uh, Tom Tiny Lister, um, a good friend of both of ours, uh, it, 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 um, Sherman Augustus, um, uh, of course, uh, people know Sherman from Into the Badlands. He's on Stranger Things, his uh, new new season coming up. So, so Sherman introduced me to Tiny uh, thirty years ago. Uh, they, they, you know, they came up in football together, and uh, you know, both both, both got boys from South LA. Yeah, right. Yeah, Tiny, Tiny was at Compton, and yeah, yeah. you know, Sherman Sherman from Watson Compton, and so I met Tiny thirty years ago, and you know, this gigantic guy, uh, you know, actually about about twice as big as Sherman, which was all any of the eyes, and and of course, people know him as the Debo in the in the Fridays uh, franchise, and. Uh, I always loved him as the president, and I thought that was fantastic casting. He played the yeah. president in the Fifth Element, and and, yeah. uh, and you know he was this guy for thirty five seconds. Uh, Tiny, uh, people knew, known known as Tiny Lister, was in a movie that I wrote <laughs> called Bad Guys, oh. and uh, you know hired and everything. Right. Who I wrote, and, uh, and, uh, and 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 he objected to some dialogue. Tiny. Oh no, really? Yeah, and uh, now it's the part that Sherman wound up playing and winning. No, no, no. For. It's the part that Rampage wound up playing. Uh, oh, the, 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 Tiny the, was. Oh, yeah, Tiny was going to play that guy, and 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 uh, and there was some dialogue. He objected, and I and I. One of my proudest moments on Earth is uh, standing up to Tiny Lister and refusing to change that dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I figured they'd fire me. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 don't but but Tiny left the production and Rampage played that part anyway. Way too young, uh, only sixty two, I believe. Uh, Tiny, yeah. Um, and um, in, in that long, long list of films and some really, really great hey. roles, he he had the best role as far as I'm concerned. And Christopher Nolan's uh, that first Batman movie, what, Batman Begins, what, was that the first Batman, Batman Begins? Yeah. Batman Begins, it was. Yeah, he's he's the guy on the boat. That gets to make the decision. That's right about what they're going to do, uh, and I thought that that was a really wonderful piece of writing on the part of of, uh, of, of Nolan and his brother and, and 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 Tiny, and Tiny did the right thing. Yeah, Tiny had that had that you know he everyone thought of him with that crazy eye. Yeah, and uh, but he really an unbelievably talented character actor who who showed up in so many movies and uh, he kind you know he knew his range like every character actor. But he could do comedy. 
He could do drama. He was particularly good at, at that understated comedy where he was kind of basically poking fun at, his, at himself. Yeah. So um, really, really going to miss him. Uh, Mark, any thoughts on Anne Reinking? That was a shock, too. Anne Reinking was a shock, too. And, uh, you know, she was so gorgeous with long legs and a great, you know, Tony-nominated uh, dancer. And she was just so striking looking with her the brunette hair and totally my type, by the way, just putting that out there. But uh, she was one of the greats, <laughs> in a way, sort of underappreciated Broadway dancers because, you know, she had a movie career, but really she made her mark on the stage. Uh, so yeah. to really appreciate Anne Ryan King, you kind of have to have seen her on, on, on stage. But still, there's somebody who never stopped being beautiful and talented. And, uh, and she was great. Anne Ryan King was terrific. And she, but again, she did a lot of really cool films, too. Um, oh, she was in jazz. Well, oh, yeah. to me, all that jazz—that's the one that really is yeah. people tend to remember. Um, but you know what? She was in Annie too. Remember, she was in Annie. That's right. Uh, Liza with a Z. I, I remember seeing Liza with a Z when I was very, very young. Um, and so, yeah, she's she was terrific. It's, and again, she she was born in 1949. So, what does that make her? That makes her. She was 71. I'm she very was 71. bad at math. 71. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, somebody who can kick like that, they, they deserve to live forever. Yeah. And she by the way, to... and don't, don't forget too, is that you know, she made her Broadway debut in Cabaret. Right. At 19. Gee. She made her Broadway debut in Cabaret. So that's, that's how far she goes back, and that's how awesome she was. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, it's, it, it's so sad. She went to sleep and didn't wake up. I mean... That's the thing that, that just kind of kills me. It's like, how does somebody who was a dancer that young, you know, you, you just don't know. Life's short. Well, you know what? Well, if, anyway. uh, yeah, yeah, Tiny, it, it, it looks like possibly, you know, poss possibly not confirmed, but possibly because of the symptoms and whatnot. Might have been comp complications from COVID. Um, uh, it, it, um, it, misranking, you know, 71, still very young. If if I'm gonna go, I think that's you know, go to sleep and just yeah. you know, you know, wake up in the in an episode of. Uh, the Golden Girls. There you but go. By the way, how, you know, when they say that somebody died peacefully in their sleep, how do you know that? Maybe there was like <laughs> 40 seconds of excruciating terror and horror as they realize they're about to die and they can do nothing about it. And the wordless screams that their significant other lying right next to them cannot hear. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it's like, what if it's just 45 seconds of wordless horror? <laughs> and oh, she went peacefully in her sleep. How do you know? You're being so you Jewish right now. It's <laughs> so Jewish. What is it? People saying. Oh, so let's 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 revisit our Lafka voting on Sunday. Uh, I felt really good about it, to be honest. I mean, it, it, you know, I I always I always appreciate that the group uh, goes its own way. That we 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 don't you know nobody no sort of follows any kind of uh, wavelength. It's like whatever the the trends are, they don't care. You know, if everybody else is is kind of leaning one way, we will lean another way and maybe we'll lean that way. But, it, you know, the group has a mind of its own and they have a taste of their own and they stick to it. And I thought I kind of felt good about the choices. I felt like it was very much uh, in the spirit of the group. You guys. Well, and certainly um, it, 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 in terms of, um, uh, you know, how, how how much love a lot of things that, you know, that I was really leaning into got in the room, even though they didn't win. I was, I think you guys know real big on the 40 year old version, not virgin, but version. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, and you know that that, that movie got Rada. Rada did get. Uh, what did we give her? New generation. We gave new generation. We gave her new generation. Uh, yeah. Uh, but the film itself and the screenplay, all again, you know, got got plenty of votes from lots of folks, and you know, and didn't didn't necessarily win in each, in, in those categories. But several films uh, got lots of Sylvie's Love, Way, the film I know that you're very big on, talked about on today today on the radio. Did not get anything. Uh, but we got a lot of love in the room. You know, a lot of lot, lot of people some. throwing throw, throwing one and two and two and one, and you know, yeah. but you know, other things just sort of overwhelmed it. But it it was a film that plainly everybody was aware of in that room. Um, well, we gave you know. we gave we gave cinematography and picture to small acts. Uh, we gave Chloe Zhao best director, just barely beating out uh, Steve McQueen for Nomadland. Um, we gave uh, Young Yu Jung of Minari uh, supporting actress. We gave Wolf Walker's animated film. Production design went to Mank. Editing went to The Father. We gave a couple of acting awards uh, for Chadwick Boseman and Glenn Turman, the two male acting awards to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Music and score went to Soul. I kind of feel like that's really spreading the wealth pretty significantly. Uh, documentary went to Time. Uh, Promising Young Woman got two awards, screenplay and uh, actress for Carrie Mulligan. So, I mean, you know, there, there, there are like three films in there that got two awards apiece. Nothing really swept. And there was a lot of kind of sharing the wealth. And I, and I feel like it's a really eclectic group of films. But still, if we had had movies in theaters, I kind of also feel like those are still the films that would have won. I think News of the World might have been a little bit better in the room. You think so? If, if, yeah, if we had maybe. had uh, the films, I think News of the World had it played, you know, at the scale at which it's, as opposed yeah. to Tenet, which in theaters or out of theaters, that, that film was not going to be talked about no. um, in, in this context. Uh, News of the World is a very, 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 very good movie, and it did not get a whole lot of love in that room. I don't think, I don't think it got, other than Tom Hanks, I don't think it came up. I, I, it did not, and I think that's that was probably. I think you're probably right because the the that film was designed to be seen on a big screen and a big sweeping uh, Western canvas. And if you're not really letting that wash over you, I think you are missing a big part of the movie. Yeah, it's probably true. But small uh, really would not have won Best Picture if it wasn't for the environment that we're in. Really, maybe you know, I maybe. we we would not have voted for anything on Amazon. Ah. Maybe not, but you know, small acts right. is a hell of an achievement. I mean, again, it was the question oh, that came great. up. No, it, it's not. It's it's not that it's not an achievement, and I voted for it. I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I won. But yeah. this is the year that we were expanding our horizons to take into account the fact that Netflix and Amazon and whatnot yeah. were, you know, and Apple TV Plus yeah. were releasing these films. Whereas, like you know, if you know. In a normal year, News of the World, if it had gone straight to Apple or Greyhound, it would not have gotten any love because it would have been sort of ghettoized into a streaming film and not a motion picture. Yeah. Mm, I think you're, I, I, I think it's, in the Academy Awards, the Oscars are not uh, including the small acts. Small acts is the series of five films by Steve McQueen, I guess we should. It, but anyway, the Academy Awards are not considering those. We did, they didn't. No. And- and 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 the the point was brought up very early on in our discussions on in email and and Luke Thompson was the first person to make the analogy to me and I and that's what kind of shifted me because in in the, you know in the in the emails the question was are we treating these as five separate films or as one body of work and in principle you would normally treat them as five different films if they're being released theatrically but then the question was well you know would you treat Kislowski's The Decalogue as ten separate films. Uh, and the answer is, well, of course not. The Decalogue is a single body of work. And, and Small Acts is a single body of work. For those who, who don't know, 
Steve McQueen, who is of uh, West Indies ancestry, um, made these five films to basically uh, create a tapestry of the experiences of the people who constitute the immigrant West Indies community in the UK. And they take place between the late 60s and the early 80s. Uh, over the course of about a 14, 15 year span, one of them is a biopic. The other four are all fictitious, but you know, one is courtroom drama. One is a house party, very intimate kind of a romance. And you know, another one is a, is a more father. And I mean, they're all different. They're all very different, wildly different lengths. All they share in common is that they are working together to create a tapestry of emotion and experience related to a particular immigrant community in a particular Western country which has not really been addressed on film before. And I think to that extent, it achieves its goals brilliantly. I think everybody agreed this is like Steve McQueen's masterpiece. And, um, you know, it's a single body of work. But what the Academy Awards are not considering it, obviously, because it is, in, in technical terms, a miniseries. But they could find a way to get... Man I'm, I'm sure Mangrove, they'll find a way, especially this year, to get at least Mangrove, which is the most movie-ish, let's say, of the five to get that thing nominated or to get that thing submitted. Don't you think? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Tim, do you know if, if, if I know the body of them is not eligible. Do you know if they're trying to get any individual one of them eligible? I'm told by Michael or, uh, or Donna over at, over at the LA times that no, the answer is no, but the films will all be considered by the, uh, the television Academy. Um, yeah, look, these films, you know, they didn't, they didn't play in theaters in, in, in the UK either, you know, be slightly before the, uh, they 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 were all for they were all for BBC, um, um, yeah. So I understand that uh, Mangrove is a full and complete film, though, and I, and I agree with you. Uh, we, I think we decided to call them specifically the Small Acts Anthology. I think if you look at the award or the website okay. or whatever, that's what it will say. Um, uh, so so you know I you know I, I I agree with Mark. They ought they they, they should figure something out. Mangrove is an extraordinary film. Um, to to my mind. And, and you don't have to compare them, but if you wanted to compare them, you can compare with that uh, Aaron Sorkin film, Trials of Chicago 7. Yeah, um, I got no love. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and it's a far and away better film um, um, uh, than that film. They're both about, about these trials and, and, you know, and, and, and all sorts of stuff that went on during these political yeah. periods. Uh, so they're kind of comparable there. So if, if Sorkin's is going to be up, then Mangrove ought to be up. Definitely. I would agree with that. But on, on balance, we, we feel good about the awards, right? Oh, yeah. I feel very good about the awards. I'm glad that Chadwick Boseman, yeah. by the way, who won Best Actor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, not rating on a curve, not feeling bad that he passed away tragically and surprisingly and shockingly. Um, he completely deserved it. Uh, you know? And you, know <laughs> you know something? Hmm. I'm, I'm going to say, I, I haven't mentioned this to anybody else, but one thing, and, it's, and, and this is purely my personal weird fixation, but one thing that totally distracted me while watching his performance was realizing that the reason that he is so gaunt in that movie is not because he lost weight for the part, but because he's a dead man walking. Yeah. He is he is dying before our eyes. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think I will probably be able to more fully appreciate that performance in five, six years. But I just sat there and every single time he opened his mouth, I almost wanted to start crying. Because I, it just, you know, you're, you're seeing a man die of cancer and give you his last breath, his last professional breath uh, for, for posterity. And um, 
it's not fair to him that I couldn't sort of get past that, but that's where my head kept going. Yeah, it's it a hindsight thing. There. It's really sort of tough to get around. And of course, it's what's really amazing tough. about it is that it's such an energetic performance. It required him, yeah. uh, you know, to dig deep and give this really sort of explosive performance, big performance. And I can imagine it that is. if you're in the, I mean, I don't have to imagine, I, I know it, uh, it that, that that took a whole lot of, that took a whole lot. Uh, but he got it, oh. he dug it up anyway. You you cannot have, as my mother uh, would call it, and a lot of people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and loved ones have called it, you cannot have, have chemo brain and be able to not only memorize all that dialogue, especially during that 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 key monologue that he gives, that key soliloquy mm-hmm. where he talks about yeah. his past and why he is the way he is, you cannot give remember that line and give that performance with chemo brain. You got to either not have it or somehow compartmentalize it. And w- mm-hmm. whatever he did, or wherever he had to go in order to give that performance was even you know more devastating and more impressive considering what he was going through. And the fact that, by the way, just as, as a side note, the fact that he was able to keep it a secret from everybody. I this know. is his intimate friends and family. It's the craziest thing. It's a yeah. funny. Well, you're looking at him walking around that set, and like you said, way behind. We look at him now, and you know, that so thin and 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 lean. And I and I think about two or three spots that I saw him over the course of that period of time, uh, both in the media and in person. Um, you know, when red carpets were still happening, and I would and I would run into him, and uh, and I would think, well, man, he 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 really got he really got lean. You know, he went to look. You know, yeah. it's it, but now we we know what it is. In the same way, uh, you know, um, um, uh, uh, Viola Davis is standing there, you know, with a sort of a fat suit on, and I think she put on five or ten pounds to sort of bulk herself up for that role too. So you have these sort of two physical things going on in that movie that are you know disparate from what you would normally see. So I don't know, um, but you're right, you're right. Now we, you can't you can't help but look at it now and and, and know what you know. Well, let's let's segue from one of our awards to the actual Blu-ray of that film, which is out now from Kino Lorber. Beanpole, the Russian film, won our foreign language award. Uh, I think fairly decisively that in, in a year that I thought was somewhat lean on really great foreign language films. Beanpole, which uh, is a Russian film from uh, Kantemir Balagov, basically uh, won the, the, the uh, certain regard section at Cannes and uh, tells the story of two women uh, the relationship between two women in post-World War II Russia. Um, pretty amazing movie, really. Uh, really one of the stunning foreign language films of the year. It's on Blu-ray, and I, I I, still feel like this is probably the foreign language film of the year, you guys? A big fan of the film. I, I do. I, I'm a little bit bigger fan of um, One More Round than you guys, though. Just a little bit bigger. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, it's Mads. Mads, get drunk. What more do you want? I love that movie. That movie's fun. But Beanpole... You feel like it's, you know, I, I, I love Thomas Vinterberg and I love Mads and I, and I, I, I love another round. It's, it's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a film that, that, that goes to places that I was not expecting, but Beanpole is such a tragedy and it was so carefully composed and the beautiful cinematography and just, and just how it told the story and you get caught up in whether and when, what's going to happen to these two women. You really cannot look away from this film. It was so powerful. I mean, I, it's, it's just, so you know, if you wind up seeing it either on Blu-ray or Blu-ray or wherever, I mean, it's slow. You got to sit with it, but uh, you really do get involved in the story of these two characters and where they're going to go. And I thought it was great. I agree with Wade. 
And then we also there's also a film that was kind of in the running a little bit, got some love in the room. That's also out from Kino Lorber on Blu-ray. That's Baccarat, the Brazilian film, which comes with just a giant pile of extras on this thing. Interviews and an essay and a short film and, and a whole bunch of great stuff. Um, very, very different film. Uh, entirely different. In, 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 you know, just kind of the other you end of the story. Baccarat? You can I say something about that movie? Yeah, go ahead. I don't get it. <laughs> I really don't. It's just the weirdest movie. Uh, it's just a well, guy in town. I don't know why. Is, is it the apocalypse? Is uh, and then zombies show up and then Udo Kier shows up and oh, no, I have no idea what's happening. No idea. What's but happening. Udo Kier is great though. Udo Kier got some love in the room. People people wanted to give Udo an award. Didn't you work some with? Didn't you did. work with Udo in a movie? On a movie? Oh yeah, dude. It was it was the the uh, the the last call. You guys remember that? You were extras on the last call because I was wrangling extras. <laughs> You, you remember that? That's where Mark. That's where Mark evolved the theory of the rampaging extra. Uh, that was that was there, and Udo played the heavy. The whole movie took place in a bar. Friends of ours wrote and produced it. Uh, one of the Arquettes, Richmond Arquette, was in the cast, and uh, and Mark and I had to. I was the extras coordinator, and and I wrangled everybody to be extras. And and Mark was sitting in the bar at one point, and, and you know, Mark evolved this theory of. What if, what if I just like flip this table, just rampage through the whole set right now? How long would it take somebody to tackle me? And, uh, In that room, you know, how, nobody would have tackled No, I just want to know like, how much of the set and how much of the camera equipment and the lighting equipment could I destroy before I got tackled? I figured I'd have a good like 10, 12 seconds. You figured there'd be at least five to seven seconds of complete and utter shock. Right. So I'd have a good seven seconds to turn over some yeah. tables, maybe knock the camera over. And then after people are like, oh, my God, stop that guy. You figure that I would be able to, to destroy most of the lighting, you know, probably smash the camera with my feet, turn over some tables. And, and then they tackle me. I just I just became the rampage. <laughs> and then do you remember? Oh, now we're now we're now now we're in for it. Do you remember when the rampage the extra? Do you remember when he had matriculated? <laughs> Please tell the story about the right stuff. Remember the right stuff yeah. we went to? Yeah, so I went to a screening, an anniversary screening of the right stuff with Mark at the 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 Egyptian, wasn't it? Wasn't it the Egyptian? We're at the Egyptian, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, De Chanel is there and Philip Kaufman is there and, you know, Zoe Deschanel and her sister are there in the audience and, and they're interviewing everybody and Ed Harris is there. And then, and after the, you know, this is years after the Rampaging Extra, and Mark leans over to me and he says, so if I just got up and like ran down the aisle and just just sucker punched Ed Harris in the side of the head, like how long do you take think it would take for people? Would I be able to do that before people came and tackled me? There it was. <laughs> Still thinking that way. You just got to figure, again, it's the same thing. You're running up, nobody knows, and then you, 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 you clock him in the mouth. And you seconds. figure you've got a good five seconds of just like complete shock. Could I get out of the side? Could, could I get out of a side door? Could I get out of one of the side exits and escape into the alley before <laughs> anybody tackled me? And I was just very curious. These, this is what I think of. Well, <laughs> Sally Wade was picturing me yeah, like so, I just running down the aisle. Like everyone's just all, it's just like this quiet, august audience of people who love this, revere this film, and this guy running down the aisle <laughs> towards the stage. <laughs> He just clocks at Harris. You got to figure. I've got a good 10, 12 seconds. I think I could have done it. 
Well, back to Udo Kier. Back to Udo Kier, since we're, we're a third of the way through the show. We've hardly <laughs> talked about DVDs. But back to Udo Kier, yes, on the last call, I had to also do all of the EPK interviews, and they were fine until I got to Udo Kier. And every interview, for the sake of the editor, you started off, would you please give us your name and, you know, the spelling of your name? Uh, and and everybody would, have, would you know, it was easy to do it. Yes, Richmond Arquette, R-I-C-H. M-O-N-D-A-R-Q-E-T, right? You, you know, everybody was very cooperative until I get to Udo Kier. Yes, would you please? Yes. And, and Udo, Udo is sitting there and he, he's doing a James Bond thing. He picked up some stray cat that was roaming around Lacey Street Studios and he was petting it in his lap because he thought it would look really eccentric on camera. And of course, it's a stray cat. It's shed like mad all over his wardrobe, which created <laughs> a problem. But, but, but before that, he's sitting there stroking the cat and he looks in the camera and he says... I'm, I'm Udo Kier. Everyone knows who I am. I don't need to introduce myself. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, uh, okay, fine. Well, you know, uh, he had been in that, he had been in that, 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 that Madonna sex book. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but that was about, that was about as big as claim the fame um, at that moment. Oh, well, anyway, Baccarat, uh, Brazilian film. Mark's right. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit peculiar. You know, he, Udo plays this guy who leads this band of mercenaries and it's, it's all, it's all very um, allegorical, you know. There's like it, it, it you're it kind of post-apocalyptic-ish, very mystical. But you know, it's it's that magical realism kind of superimposed on a Brazilian modern-day Western, and it's it's a uh, it's an unusual film. Uh, Mark doesn't get it, but you know, it's worth paying attention to. Baccarat, it got a little bit of love in the room too. Had a Jodorowsky kind of thing going on. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk for a second about Tenet. Which is out on 4K Ultra HD this week, uh, which I watched in 4K, and it is freaking beautiful, and the sound is astonishing. It lit up my home theater system, and that's about the only thing it lit up, because I do not like this movie. Gentlemen? (laughs) I I hate this stupid-ass movie. I'm sorry. Chris Nolan, and I've felt this way for a while now, and I know that he's, you know, but but, uh, when it comes to... A certain brand of movie, and frankly, all of his movies, he's re- redoing uh, Memento, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the certain movies that he does where he applies this overlay, right? This sort of um, uh, fake cerebral, fake uh, uh, scientific, uh, fake, and he just applies this crap, right? So he takes takes something like a real-world science, real-world philosophy, and then he wraps it in a whole bunch of crap. Now, I don't really mind that at all. This is what I mind. When he spends the entire tr- movie trying to convince me that this crap that he made up is real, which is what he does all the time. It, it, so in this movie, mostly we're you know big action set pieces, you know a lot of fun, but mostly we're walking around with John David and whoever the hell John David's hanging out with Robert Pattinson, whoever it is, and they're having these conversations where Nolan is trying to convince you that the crap he made up for this movie is real. And 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 I'm like, really? You're gonna you're gonna spend 45 minutes of movie trying to trying to drag me into you know entropy and inverted time travel, dude? You made that shit up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 stop trying to convince me it's real. You're getting on my nerves. <laughs> Mark, uh, any thoughts? Oh, I have plenty of thoughts. Uh, I <laughs> I didn't like this film either. But what's what's interesting is that I look at this. I look at Nolan as a guy who feels that he has a brand and the brand is to be in, you know, this 
intellectual, conf- not confusing in his mind. I think him and his brother feel like they've got it all worked out in their head, even if they can't quite express it to us. You know, we sort of take it on faith that they have it figured out and we just don't get it. But right now they're just creating stuff that is so confusing and so out there. And just like the train is running way ahead of the tracks that I just don't understand what's going on and I'm checking out. And when I think of this film, I think of Dunkirk. And the reason why I think of Dunkirk is because Dunkirk is a great, great film. But what didn't work about Dunkirk is what he was attempting to do with time. Do you remember how he cut that film in his mind? He cut that film in a way that all three of those stories were happening like at the same time, but we couldn't really tell because of the way it was edited. He was trying to do something with time in that film. And it was the only thing in that film that didn't work because he's got this thing about time. And he just, all of his films have to do with, I mean, maybe not the Batman films, but yes, these they do. films that where he deals with time, <laughs> or Interstellar, or, huh? Yes, they do. They do. So even, the Batman, even, even the Batman film. I, I'm agreeing with you. I guess you're right, actually. Even the Batman film. I think that he feels like that's his brand. His brand is to be this intellectual guy who you expect to create this 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 time-involved puzzle. And that's who he has to be. And just like a drug addict who needs more and more to get the same high, he's sort of giving you more and more thinking that that's what he's got to give us. And I wish somebody would give this guy $2 million to make his next film because that would that would just force him to just tell a straight-ahead story and stop being so ridiculous and just because he could be very clever. But right now he's being just too clever for his own good where we're all just checking out. He just He's flying so far up his own butt that we can't find him anymore. Yeah, and that's what I would like for somebody to give him someone else's script to direct and just say, here, someone else wrote this. This is a really good script. Just make it look good. Get the actors to act well and forget about all, you know, don't read any more articles in Scientific American. Just stop. (laughs) We're going to take that subscription away from you. And we're just going to we're going to focus on people for a change, not all of this theoretical stuff that you just become obsessed by, because all he's really doing is taking a Rubik's Cube and putting it inside of, uh, you know, a Tetris game and putting that inside of like a Sudoku and locking that up inside a crossword puzzle and throwing it into a vault and then and then hiding the key and telling us to, to look for it. And I, I, that isn't fun for an audience. You know, I've got nothing to hang my hat on there. At a certain point, that just becomes sadism. And uh, I, I really feel like he kind of he kind of jumped the shark with this one. Mm. But and you, and you know what? You know? Because I, we didn't talk about him all that much. John Le Carre. John Le Carre wrote all these stories yes. that were made into movies, and he didn't. He, and, and, and they were thrilling movies. Uh, you know, a range of a range of movies, but they were all pretty pretty damn good. And they didn't have to mess around with time with time travel with any of them. Uh, you know, you just get you get Richard Burton. You write some good dialogue. Uh, it all takes place in real t- in, in the real world, and you and they are just as smiley's people. Nothing happens in Tenet and that's that's more intense than anything that happens in smiley's people, uh, uh, or Russia House, or or yeah. or, 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 or the, the Taylor of Panama, or whatever. Uh, it, so so what was the point of all of this crap, um, uh, uh, Nolan? And, and and I'll tell you another thing too. When when we were all kids, watching shows like The Prisoner. Uh, the Avengers, whatever, you know, these shows. Um, they could take the word a stan and put any series of consonants in front of it, and we believed that that was a, 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 an Eastern European country. Uh, clickety clack a stan. 
And, and we were good. In, in, in Mission Impossible, they would go to Clickety Clackistan and they would do whatever the hell they had to do there. And we never we never questioned any of these things. They didn't have to point it out on the map. Just tell the story, dude, and we will go with you on the time travel crap. Stop trying to convince me that it's real. Because the thing, because, because well, the time travel stuff, right, because the time travel stuff is coming before the story, right? Yeah. It's almost like he's 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 deciding how he wants to intellectually stimulate us without saying first what's the story. The story should come first, right? And then whatever enigma and mystery he wants to enrobe it in and confuse us, I guess, is more tolerable. But now I feel like the the, the puzzle part is coming before the story. Mm. All right, now, gentlemen, now that we are halfway through the show, I would like for us to re-review Tenet in reverse. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Why anyway. are you, talking, you realize we've all seen Wonder Woman. I can't believe you haven't talked about it. You know, let's 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 jump into that because it's not a DVD or Blu-ray stuff. But let's let's get into let's get into Wonder Woman. Uh, so you know we've all seen it. Wonder Woman's the big thing. Opens this week. Uh, Tim, uh, go first. Well, Give us, no, uh, no, no, no spoilers for me here. Uh, Gail uh, Godot, I I adore her. Um, 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 she's, she's extremely empathetic and, and in some bizarre way, believable running around in that wacky, uh, blue and gold outfit that Linda Carter used to wear. Um, <laughs> um, the narrative that they have woven together here to make this movie is just beyond my understanding for, for how this comes to be the storyline. And, and, and again, no spoilers. Uh, but but just like those Marvel movies, they keep putting things at the center of these movies. A thing. And there's this yep. thing that we need to get. Uh, and if we get this thing, we can, you know, whatever the hell it is we're trying to do, the universe, the world, or whatever it is. But, but it's a thing. And I, I got to tell you, man, again, uh, Lex Luthor, he just had a hard-on for Superman, dude. <laughs> and that's just kind of straight up all they were doing, man. Superman's like, man, I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, be, save some people. And Lex Luthor's like, I don't fucking like that dude. <laughs> and, 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 that's, and, that's, and that's just what it was. You know, there's no magical, mystical crap, you know. Uh, yeah. So I don't know, man. I just, I don't know. Now, anyway, take it. I, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I recognize all the flaws in it. I kind of appreciate the message that they want to preach, even though it's not consistent with the message. Like Tim, you and I talked previously about like, you know, the whole wish fulfillment thing, careful what you wish for. Mm. And, and uh, at a certain point you would like to believe that one of the six or 5 billion people in the world in 1984 would have wished for everybody else to just stop it, cut it out. It would have been <laughs> my first wish. I been like, my first wish. Would have been like, well, everybody, please, just I wish everybody would just chill the hell out. And I, yeah, I can't believe it, but, I'm the only person who's going to wish that. Apparently, uh, everyone in the world is a sociopath, as you pointed out. Mark? <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 Wonder Woman is, it's a, it's a good film, but there's a better film struggling to climb out from underneath <laughs> all of the, the tonnage of expectations and plot and verbiage and characters and CGI that is just really smothering it, you know? And it's funny because in the, in, in the movie, the part of the issue is that everybody wants more, right? You want to wish for more, more. This, the, uh, the main villain or besides Chris and wig as cheetah, one of the other villains is Pedro Pascal playing this guy, Maxwell Lord, and he wants more, more, more. Well, this movie also wants more, more, more mm -hmm. when really what it is is less. 
You know, there's the expectation to make it bigger and longer and faster and crazier and more CGI, more this. It, it, that expectation has to sort of, somebody's got to say that, you know what, why can't it just be a one hour and 55 minute terrific film that plays with the 80s tropes of Wall Street, greed is good, right? Because really that's what the movie's about. It's almost a superhero version of Wall Street, right? The idea that greed is good. And if you can wish for something, you can wish for something that benefits you because you're greedy and you want more. And the idea that Wonder Woman wants to sort of short circuit that and say, why can't we all just get along, right? Mm, so yeah. I like the fact that we cleverly use the greed is good Wall Street 80s thing, right? Which is the main crux of the story. But again, there's just such tonnage, right? That you just feel like, you know, I just need a lot less of this. I really do. I just forget the expectations and just tell me a story. You know, there's such there's such corporate expectations that come with these movies, with these sequels. And the first one was terrific. The reason why the first one was so terrific was because it felt a little smaller, right? A little bit, but it also had World War. It had World War One. It had a. I think the fish out of water thing was is more entertaining when it is uh, Diana being introduced to Steve Trevor's world in 1915, uh, as opposed to or 1918, whatever year. No, it was it was 15, 1915. But as opposed to uh, now where she, she this is her world in 1984 and she's introducing him to her world. Uh, it's it's a nice twist, but I think it worked better the other way around. But still, I, I enjoyed it despite all of its flaws. I think Maxwell Lord is a more compelling villain when he was introduced on Supergirl. Tim will remember mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think they had him on, on Smallville, too. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, he's he's been around the DC universe on TV for a while. But anyway um wonder woman you know we're we're mixed on it but i think tim and i we're we're big fans of the dress mark are you a fan of the white dress did that did that oh, wow. uh, redeem the movie for you she <laughs> she i said i'll tell you gal, gal gadot she is like she is a magnificent creature yeah really, oh, it's, 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 and there you know there there's certain shots whether the the camera's in the right spot the lighting is just there where you're like you know what maybe there is a god <laughs> somehow <laughs> this creature was created yeah, the, by the way, and, and I'm I'm saying that by the, it's fully admitting that like Henry Cavill, that is one that is one hunk of manly manly manlitude. That guy is <laughs> handsome as hell. Yeah, and, both things. Are you know, true. he's both the same way. You know, as, you know. But as a heterosexual uh, man, I do have to say that she's. I, and I was I was saying to Tim too because you know Tim and I were nuts over this white dress that she's wearing in the movie, and I, of course I watched it with my wife and daughter, so I have to be on my best behavior. Uh, but we were all just wowed by Gal Gadot in the film. But there's a there is a white dress and it has a slit in the leg, mm -hmm. and she goes to the party and and you know every single time her leg pops through that slit, which was designed specifically to do that. Yeah. Um, I just sat there every single time that leg comes through the slit. I just sat there and I went, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's, it's, it was just, it's just walking. She's <laughs> just walking. Just walking. But it's just, it's a beautiful walk. It's movie magic. It's like, it's like Audrey Hepburn coming down the, the stairs in that, uh, in that Givenchy dress in, in My Fair Lady. You know, it's just, it's a moment where you, where, where the actress and the fashion just become one in this incredibly glamorous Hollywood way that only Hollywood can do. Yeah. There's a reason she's playing Cleopatra. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Well, a couple other films real quickly from our awards run. So uh, Corpus Christi also got a little bit of love in the room. That's out also on Blu-ray from uh, Film Movement. Corpus Christi is about a guy who uh, kind of um, he wants to be a priest, but he's got a record. So 
he masquerades as a priest and gets a calling and and becomes a uh, you know a pretty good fake priest. Polish film. Uh, it was in the Oscar hunt last year, and uh, I think it's a pretty sharp little movie. And in, in, in a year that wouldn't have had Beanpole, I think this would have had a better shot. Mm. Thoughts? Mm. Agreed. It's it's it's, yeah. it's a terrific film. It, it almost feels like a Paul Schrader film in a weird yeah. way. Yeah, it does kind yeah, of. That's, that's a, a good point. Yeah. Well, it was a nominee in uh, earlier earlier this oh, year. Uh, so worth checking out from Film Movement. Uh, and that that one uh, has a bonus short film on it called Nice to See You and a making of featurette, but otherwise a very nice Blu-ray. Uh, then not to be forgotten, the New York Film Critics Circle, who uh, who we've kind of, you know, we used to do that little dance, right? Who, who gets to put their awards out first? Mm. And uh, New York Film Critics are, are an, or, an older organization and their pride was wounded when we kept kind of beating them to the punch by 24 or 48 hours in a few years. So about three or four years ago, they went for broke and just said, fine, we're going to be even earlier. And I think everybody in our group just said, you know what? Uh, we don't want it that badly. Yeah. We'd kind of like to, it's like, we'd rather sleep in. We don't want to, we, we don't want to have to see all those movies that quickly. We'll take the extra week. Thank you. You can, you can have the earlier slot. And so New York owns kind of the earlier uh, film critic slot. They chose first cow mm. as their best film of the year. The uh, Kelly Reichert film set in 1820 kind of a you know a typically slow moving offbeat allegorical western from kelly reichard i think the first time she's won any kind of a best picture of the year award um i find first cow to be rather typically kelly reichard a little bit too high-minded for me the whole metaphor of the cow and these two guys and you know i i it's a it's a little much for me but it's a beautifully made film i don't know what you guys thought of yeah it. Lo lovely uh, you know the sort of the sort of center notion in that movie is there's only this one cow and these people they what are, what are they making cheese or something like that so sort of special cheese yeah. uh, and they need milk so they have to steal milk from this you know, cow i guess you would call the guy a cow baron as opposed, to a, <laughs> as opposed to a cattle bear. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, it, so that, that, that little conceit right there, it's a little bit funnier than anything she's ever done. It has a certain humor True. to it. it yeah. Because Kelly is not, uh, a lot, no. not a lot of humor. No. I mean, she's, she's, she's gotten love from, the, from our group before. I was surprised she didn't get more this time. Uh, that, was, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. We gave uh, supporting actress to, to her last film, uh mark any any thoughts about first cow big fan of first cow you know what i feel like it kind of chips like normally with westerns during this time it's about cowboys and and horses and running around and being heroic and news of the world this is just a very small as you say metaphorical story very unhurried totally absorbing uh it's a story where you're like you realize that the best stories literally just have to and we and this almost harkens back to wonder woman where it has to be the biggest 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 thing ever this is a story about a, about a guy stealing milk from a cow like literally <laughs> literally yeah. it's about that and it, 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 it speaks to the problem again with with those both wonder woman and tenant you know that density this story is really just about guys stealing milk from a cow so they can make some cheese and 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 there's and there doesn't require any time travel or satyr squares or or, or golden lassos uh, or any of that sort of crap and 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 you know far and away the better film for it. 
Brilliant. Any uh, so I'm just looking here uh, if there are any other films we might want to uh, to talk about real quickly before we dive into some some kind of classic stuff. Uh, I'm by the way I'm about the a little you know after we kind of wrap up here then I'm going to wrap out the rest of the show because we've been all been watching movies nonstop and all the DVDs and Blu-rays are piled up in front of me and we can't really uh, you know see each other at the moment because of the uh, quarantine. So I'm going to let uh, Mark and uh, Tim go. At a certain point in the show, and then you're going to suffer with me for the rest of the uh, the the wrap up for the year, uh, and I'll cover all that stuff that Mark always hates when I do. I'm going to uh, Mark. I'm going to talk about anime. I'm going to talk about <laughs> classical Blu-rays. I'm going to talk about all those things you hate when I talk about. Wait, are, you, are you annoyed? You yet? sent him and I a list of everything you wanted to talk about. You you sent him <laughs> and I a list of everything you wanted to talk about during the show. There's like 60 things on this list. We're not talking no, about all was, this stuff. We're just not. I said. It was. I said, you know, like if there's anything on there that floats your fancy, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's it was a big onslaught at the end of the year. Well, there, there, there's a lot well, of you, stuff you, under the you, docs. You, that that John Lewis, that John Lewis doc, Good Trouble. Did you have? Did you yeah. guys happen to see that? Of course, you it, know, we lost a, John. Terrific. Uh, yeah, I guess what was it this year? Or last year? I guess it was. It was this it was year. This year. This year. This year. Uh, yeah. uh, and you know, I don't yeah, know. That just seemed year. that would just that was just so you know to to have that that film in the can. Uh, and then to lose him in the midst of yeah. everything that was happening at this time. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I you know, kismet is not a thing that, uh, that I that I generally speaking believe in, but it seems, but it seemed like it was. And he passed on July seventeenth. July seventeenth, couple of weeks before. Uh, yeah. So you know, I got to recommend that to people. Um, it's it's it really is just a, a, an amazing sort of biographical and historical doc. Uh, that's about him, but mostly it's about what he stood for and what he had been doing for the last 65 years since he was 18 years old. Um, and, and that's the thing. He was 18 when he when it's when he started, basically, when he committed himself to a life of activism and, and with the civil rights movement. 18. Yeah. I mean, that's that's rather an extraordinary commitment for a young man. So. Yeah. And by the way, since since we may not, it sounds like Wade will be wrapping up the docs by himself. I do want to say on the other end of the spectrum, uh, this is obviously not John Lewis, who's an icon, but I do want to recommend Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, which is the Red and Stimpy yeah. documentary. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it ta- I love that show. And you know what? I hadn't seen it in years. Uh, Wade, if it's on Blu-ray, please give me that Blu-ray. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a DVD, and I would be uh, happy to set it aside for you. Really, but like both seasons, like the like I, I don't well, care the, so much about the, the seasons. The doc, yet, Chris Lucy got fired. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I only have the doc right here. I got the doc right oh, here, but no. uh, now how about the series? Is this is Red Stimpy yeah. on Blu-ray? You know, no, it's not. Oddly enough, isn't that weird? It's not on Blu-ray, and maybe maybe now that there's kind of a, a movement to revisit it a little bit, and Chris Lucy is giving interviews again, maybe uh, maybe that time will arrive. Uh, it's it's overdue. You know, you know well, the, the thing. The thing about that about that doc, so Ren and Stimpy, Beavis and Butthead too, for that matter, but definitely Ren and Stimpy. Uh, that was always our a, a car, a cartoon that I, I I used to try to analyze it and see if there was something deeper in there, if there was something going on, if it was like you know, I mean, you know, South Park and The Simpsons will sometimes you know, you know, you peel back those onions and they're and they're and they're they got some interesting things to say. But Ren and Stimpy always came away from being like, no, this is this is this is <laughs> this is again exactly what you're watching. Uh, and there's nothing particularly complicated or deep no, or philosophical going on in Ren and Stimpy. No. No, it's 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 just uh, it's all kind of crazed 
almost drug addled uh adolescent sadism and weirdness and uh you know plucking hairs and bodily fluids it's it is what it is yeah. none of that stuff means anything at all um i want to i want to put a, a big shout out here for some, some some great american classic cinematic comedy uh starting with the cohen film collection release this is volume four of their buster keaton collection on blu-ray uh, the part of the Classics of American Cinema line from Cohen Film Collection. It includes Buster Keaton's Go West and College with all new scores. Uh, Go West has a new 4K restoration. Has really never looked better. I, I love all the Blu-ray stuff from Kino, but I got to tell you, man, the, the, the releases of the same films from Cohen are really, really rivaling them. And I like the scores that they've got on here. And, uh, you know, Buster Keaton remains utterly and completely incomparable. Go West and College are a lot of fun. Go West looks the best. I tend to think college is uh, the one that ages the best. We also have from um, Classic Flicks a couple of really fun releases. Abbott and Costello and Africa Screams, special <laughs> limited edition. This has been out in public domain editions forever, and they went and found original 35-millimeter nitrate film elements and restored them, and it is just absolutely glowing. This is a very, very funny film. Uh, just about everything Abbott and Costello is funny, but this is wonderful. has tons of audio uh, special features on here, including an audio commentary and uh, a 1953 live television sketch that they did called The Rubdown that will absolutely have you losing your breath. Every so bit is fun. funny as that who's on first yeah. bit that everybody on the planet knows. Oh, it's so good. And then we also have the Marx Brothers in uh, A Night in Casablanca. Uh, this is kind of the... Uh, this is the the this was the final Marx Brothers movie. Basically, they uh, it's not as funny as their earlier stuff, but uh, it's still got a lot of great stuff in it. This was made in 1946, and uh, this also comes with a fair number of uh, a, a few interesting extra things: radio commercials and uh, you know a, an onstage uh, performance, a very rare clip of them in 1945, uh, the original trailer, lobby cards, and, and various galleries on here. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it also happens to be the only Marx Brothers movie that has a bit of a World War II story to it. There, you know, there's a Nazi spy ring that they're, they're having to bust up here. And as Jewish comics, there is something relevant to that. So even though it's not their funniest film, it does feel like the film that they felt that they had to make, given everything that had happened prior to 1946. So uh, historically, A Night uh, in Casablanca is a significant film uh, produced by David E. Lowe. Um, guys, before we wrap it up, I want to, I want to get everybody's, uh, to kind of weigh in on the Criterion's Criterion kind of belched out an amazing bunch of, a bunch of films here right at the end of the year. They had previously released on uh, DVD and now have Blu-rays to replace them. Uh, the Jules Dassin film Brute Force, mm. uh, with Burt Lancaster from, uh, 1947 and, uh, the remarkable Jules Dassin film, The Naked City. Oh, yeah from uh, 1948. Uh, some thoughts about Jules Dassin, who I know, Tim, you're, you're a big uh, Jules Dassin fan. Yeah, uh, Jules, who, was, who, despite the fact that he worked in, in, um, in, in France uh, and in the French language quite often, was from New York um, um, uh, uh, himself. And, and, and really saw Rafifi um, um, uh, is, is a particular... Oh, yeah. You know, is that on Blu-ray yet? Uh, it, I think it is. I think Rafifi oh, is. Oh, I, I own it. It's an extraordinary it film. Oh, uh, so love that. Um, 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 uh, all of that stuff. You know, Jules often, often overlooked or or underappreciated, I think, as a as a director of um, 
of noir from that period. Yeah, well, these are these are two really tough films, really great, uh, awesome uh, 19, late 1940s era stuff, right uh, coming on the heels of the Marx Brothers film. Uh, Mark, uh, give me your give me, uh, Gregory Peck as an actor. He, the Gunfighter is also out, 1950 uh, Western with Gregory Peck, uh, directed by Henry King. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about Gregory Peck in the last show because we talked, we, we recommended uh, the new release of Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn uh, as, a, as a, a holiday yeah. thing. Very different Gregory Peck on, on display here. Mark, what made Gregory Peck, apart from being staggeringly good looking, why, why should people care about Gregory Peck? You know, what's, what's funny is that when you look at something like here, the gunfighter, which do you? Um, when you look at the gunfighter, the, the role, the original, the role was originally supposed to go to John Wayne. And when John Wayne didn't do it, Gregory Peck picked it up. Now, what's interesting when you look at John Wayne versus Gregory Peck, to me, John Wayne feels like two generations ago, right? He almost feels like somebody who maybe even would have lived during the period in which these the movies that he was most famous for took place. Whereas Gregory Peck, to me, felt a little more modern. And he and he he's a guy who I can see him playing somebody like MacArthur because he had that sense of authority, um, that modern sense of warfare authority that I'm not even sure that John Wayne had. John Wayne had swagger and cool, but Gregory Peck, to me, had this sort of uh, this rectitude about him. Right, where you can buy him as somebody like MacArthur, you can buy him as Jimmy Ringo in The Gunfighter, and he was one of the first. And he also reminded me of my father, which means nobody, which means nothing to nobody. But um, I, I was a huge fan of Gregory Peck. And by the way, The Omen, still a cool movie. Mm. Pretty great, yeah. Uh, no, also from Criterion is Mouchette. No, uh, no, no, we we have no disagreements. No, no disagreement. But I, but uh, also from Criterion Mouchette, uh, Robert Bresson's film from 1967, one of the great, uh, you know, Bresson made movies during the French New Wave period, as did Louis Malle, but was not of the New Wave. Mm. Uh, so, you know, he, he kind of forged his own path uh, parallel to it. And uh, Mouchette is one of his most tragic, wonderful, heartbreaking and touching movies uh, I think this is in many respects a lot like Rosetta, possibly even inspired Rosetta by the Darden brothers. It has a similar vibe to it, you know, this this young girl who has to sort of carry her incredibly uh, tragic family on her shoulders. And uh, it, it's just a beautifully made film, very minimalist, uh, has the original trailer, which I didn't even realize was cut by Godard. Mm. Godard cut the trailer. Now think of that, Godard cut a trailer for Brisson. Isn't that wild? Crazy. Now, see, that's that's interesting. Uh, you know, that yeah. that's a tenant sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. There, that's much more than that Nolan crap. Fantastic, fantastic uh, commentary on here by Tony Raines, who always does really good commentaries. And then a uh, Brisson documentary by uh, Theodore Cotula, which uh, actually has on-set footage of uh, the making of the film. It's really, really quite wonderful. Um, let's talk for a second too about. Um, were you going to mention? Were you going to mention Symbiopsycho? That's where I'm okay, going. Okay, That's where I'm okay. going. Let's talk for a second about Symbiopsycho Taxiplasm, two takes by William Greaves. Um, you know, uh, Tim, did you ever meet Greaves? Just once. Uh, um, um, yeah. um, uh, when he made that second, the follow-up, the you know, take two. Um, which yeah. is What two thousand something? What when was that? The, the first. The first oh. film was like nineteen sixty-eight. 
Uh, the, the, yeah, take one was 1968, and take two is 2005. 2005. Wow, um, uh, yeah. it's interesting. And and uh, and yeah, w- w- you look again a, a an, an under a not often enough noted um, um, experimental filmmaker. The first film, of course, uh, he's he's auditioning actors uh, uh, for a fictional drama, while 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 behind the scenes he's shooting, unbeknownst to them. Uh, them and the dramas that they are experiencing yeah. as they are attempting to audition for this film, in which he is doing all kinds of things on purpose uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to, to 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 make trouble and to uh, to. So it's just really a fascinating film, which I'm biting, vis- just viciously biting in a little movie that and I made. Uh, so you know, um, it's, it's, it's easier to keep track of, easier to keep track of than ten. <laughs> Much easier, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, easier to keep track of because he's, it's focused on the on the people. And of course, you know, for those who who followed the show for a while, Tim has been uh, cutting his little independent film, which is deeply, deeply inspired in many respects by Greaves. Yes, yes. And uh, you know, I have seen some of the stuff, and I think Greaves himself is looking down and and shedding a little tear at at, uh, at the homages that you have inculcated into the film. It's uh, it's very, it's a really wonderful nod to him. You know, we um. We had we programmed courtesy of Ray Green, our colleague on uh, Cine Gods and in Lafka. We programmed uh, Symbiopsychotaxoplasm for the uh, films that got away series in its first year, which we sponsored with the American Cinematheque. And um, I did not attend the screening, which I believe Greaves did. But then uh, when my wife was working on the uh, Tom DeCillo film, which we talked about, you know, a few weeks ago, that's also now out on Blu-ray, and we were in New York, and I was, you know basically blowing off days spending at my wife's per diem um there was a special screening of symbiopsychotaxoplasm both of them both takes at the tribeca center and i thought well hell i'm here in new york i'm 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 going on down so i went and you know got a press pass to it because all the publicists in new york were hearing from me on a daily basis because i was looking to see anything free and um I, and and Greaves was there, and I went up to him in the lobby, and I said, "Mr. Greaves, you 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 don't know me, but I was one of the LA Film Critics uh, Films That Got Away members, who who programmed this for the Films That Got Away series." And the and and I hardly even got that sentence out of my mouth when Greaves had this big smile, and he freaking hugged me. He just he hugged me in the lobby of the Tribeca Center, a big old bear hug. He just hugged me, and he said thank you and it was it was so beautiful and so human and i was so touched you know it wasn't it wasn't the usual thing you get with a filmmaker where it's very well thank you very much and i appreciate it and thank you for loving my work it was a human expression of deepest gratitude for recognizing a body of work that so few people had ever recognized because you know like so many experimental filmmakers he worked on the margins and, uh, you know, nobody ever gave Greaves a $5 million payday for directing a movie. This is a passion that he had. And um, it, it's a moment I'll never forget. So this this film, I think, is very, very uh, touching to me. It's, I'm very close to it. I know Tim is. Mark, any any thoughts on Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, the two takes? Uh, no, other than the fact that uh, I think you want to talk about it just because you can say the title so easily, whereas most of us have struggled. <laughs> Well, there are there's some wonderful stuff on here. There is a documentary called Discovering William Greaves. It is worth the purchase alone. Uh, so many wonderful people interviewed here give you a complete appreciation of his work. There's also a Steve Buscemi uh, interview from 2006, uh, which oddly enough is the year that uh, it's the year after that he gave me the big bear hug yeah. at uh, Tribeca. And a uh, great a- an essay here, a beautiful essay from uh, Amy Taubin. 
Uh, the last two criterions here, I'm going to let you guys kind of uh, jump into either of them. One of them is uh, Cronenberg's Crash with James Spader and Holly Hunter, a film that is deeply loathed by a lot of people. And uh, Amoris Peros, the film that gave us Inyaritu, that introduced him uh, with a splash to everybody. Uh, Amoris Peros from the year 2000. Oh, man, I cannot and, believe uh, that was 20 years ago. I know. I know, and Crash from 24 years ago, 1996. Crash and Amoris Peros. Any thoughts, gentlemen? Well, you know, Crash was always a film that um, uh, I appreciated more than I liked. For one thing, um, yeah, you're 1996, right? And, yeah. And, you know, and I'm watching this movie, and I'm thinking to myself, this is not the L.A. that I live in. No, it's it's a nothing that cr- no absolutely. This is just not the LA that I live in, and and, and the way the, and the way that movie just sort of you know I'd only been here I only been here six years then, but you know that's long enough. I know you know, you've been here yeah. all your life, Mark, been all, all your life. But I just I, like this 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 you know, this 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 film has this sort of attitude and this sort of belief and this sort of understanding uh, about at least LA. It's not only set in LA, but about about at least LA that just isn't true. And I just couldn't get past that in that movie. You know, I mean, I get it. Uh, he's leaning into some really, really sort of heavy themes here. Uh, but you know, the place just had to be real, and Los Angeles was not real in that movie. That you is- know, when I saw the movie, I didn't really take. I To me, none of it was sort of real, you know? And I felt like it was this sort of inquiry into, like, you know, human desire and... Uh, and the weird manifestations that that could take. And if you find somebody willing to go with you on that journey, then that's fine. And I feel like Cronenberg, you know, he, in a way, is the perfect person to direct this kind of a film. And, and for the, as I remembered, for the first half of it, it was pretty good, but I feel like it, kind of, it got a little more ridiculous as it went along. And then by the end, I kind of felt like it kind of went off the rails. But, um, you know, it was a very controversial film, right? It's got an, it's got an awful amount of, crazy sex in it and and, and, and eroticism got <laughs> a lot of people this thing got an nc-17 mm, yeah you know which by the way i i if, if you ask anybody under the age of 30 do they know what an nc-17 is i wonder if they would <laughs> well, no, <laughs> no. Or, or, where, or where it came from you know yeah um so it's it's definitely an acquired taste and if you acquire it then uh, uh, then leave me alone Stay, stay, stay out of my orbit. If this is a taste that you can acquire, because it well, is about very sexually strange people. Not to be confused with the crash that won Best Picture eleven years later. This is this is a, as a, as a friend of mine likes to say about this crash. Uh, he says it's not a movie; it's vomit. Well, it, it and, has that whole JG Ballard, right? So it has that whole thing, that whole Jimmy Dean thing, right? James De- yeah. James Dean thing. Yeah. That's the crash that they're referring to. Uh, and and other crashes. These people who like to, you know, crash their cars and they have their, their bodies are all mangled and, and they are and, and it's this whole sort of eroticism. Rosanna Arquette's character in particular, uh, the, the, yeah, that's this disengaged in it and, and all. That. So you know, I don't. I, but you, yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, Amoris Peros, uh, which I think was a kind of a landmark film. This was. I, I'd like to to point out that you know Amoris Peros was not just a um uh an inuritu film but it was uh, this is the film that he also did with uh guillermo ariaga as a as a uh as a partner they wrote this together so ariaga was very much a part of these interwoven narrative films that began with amoros peros and of course uh, you know is sort of most typified by babel 
Um, and in your review, has kind of gone away from that a little bit more into into more conventional narratives recently. Birdman, you know, being being the one that won the, the best picture. But with Ameros Peros, I think that that collaboration really was kind of an explosive thing. You know, it was it was a little bit Altman like, but it was more than that. It was something a little bit more poetic and maybe more unsettling. Uh, a lot of people really don't like this film, but I find it invigorating. Mm. Well, you know, don't forget too, and in, 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 don't forget too, in, in this movie there were obviously simulated, but there were pretty bloody dog fights. Yeah. Um, that's what a lot of people bloody dog fights. Really, really angry about. It. And I understand because dog fighting is disgusting, but that turned yeah. people off. But as a, it's it's a triptych. It's a there's three stories. I remember there's a, just a triptych of life in Mexico City, and uh, it it interweaves these stories in the most dramatic and emotional and devastating way possible. I thought it was just absolutely terrific. And in your too, as I remember, it was probably less, he probably younger than 40 when he made it. Um, and so I, I, yeah. I think it's terrific. It was pretty early Gael Garcia Bernal too, if I'm not mistaken, it was, you're right. It was kind of, kind of, kind of at the top of what, what, Oh, well here in the United States. Anyway, he'd been around Mexico for quite a while. So last two titles here before we uh, we kind of wrap things up and then I dive in and, uh, and and bore our audience to death with a bunch of other stuff. But the uh, you know uh, also out on Blu-ray, Mark being the big baseball fan, um, I know you're a Mets fan, but you know the Dodgers won the World Series mm-hmm. in a year where nobody actually watched it. But there that's out on Blu-ray now, uh, the 2020 World Series uh, film narrated by Vin Scully. Mark, are you happy that Vin Scully got another World Series to be a part of? I could not be happier. There was actually an article in, I think it was in the LA Times. It was an article about interviewing the producer of that Blu-ray and what an honor it was for him to get Vin Scully to not only narrate it, but also for this producer who also wrote the wrote the copy for the for the documentary to get Vin Scully to read his words. He was like, oh, I cannot believe that Vin Scully is reading words that I wrote. And Vinny would say like, hmm. hey, can I change this word and make it something more like what I would say? And the producer would be like, you're Vin Scully. You can change every goddamn word you want. I don't care. Just, just, <laughs> just, just make sure that the point of this, just make sure that, that, that the fact or the point of the statement is still where I need it to go. But you can change whatever the hell you want, man. You're Vin Scully. So the fact that Vinny, who was the Dodger play-by-play guy for 65, 65 years around that, mm. can you imagine having the same job for 65 years? Because when he started, he was in his 20s, and Red Barber was the Dodgers uh, play-by-play guy, oh, right. legendary Red Barber. Vinny was kind of like the sidekick. You know, he's uh, the, the second banana there, but Red Barber was the main um, the main announcer. And then eventually, Vinny, you know, he graduated to the main announcer, and he had that job for many, many decades. And, you know, if you look at someone like maybe Chick Hearn for the Lakers, you know, maybe one or two others, there is nobody like Vince Scully in the fact that he was alive and could enjoy the Dodger victory, even though he couldn't be at Dodger Stadium. Nobody could be at Dodger Stadium uh, when it happened is a little bit of a, a little bit of a tragedy. But also the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it, they won the World Series in a 60 game season. Which is like, all right, I guess. Why not? <laughs> now, the, now, now, when the Lakers, okay, now when the Lakers won, they played all the games. They played eighty-two games. They went through all the playoffs. They that was a legit, yeah. and it was just broken up, right, by by COVID, yeah. by X number of months. But I'm sorry, I'm going to get letters or emails, or probably not because no one cares what I say. But 
If it literally, if the Mets had won the World Series last year, I would say, who cares? It was a sixty-game season. It's just not the same. <laughs> Part of the art of baseball is managing your players during the campaign of 162 games and the injuries and the psychological days off and the slumps that that's part of the art of it. Right. And that's why for 162 games, if you can keep that team steady and keep them going and be able to juggle all the difficulties and putting the best team that you can on the field every day, if you can juggle all that and still win a championship, you deserve it. 60 games. Meh. Yeah. Well, on on a higher note, uh, Charlie Could Kaufman you to Wade Major at Wade Major. At, yeah. <laughs> so at, on a plasmiosis.com. That's it exactly. People are going to send get those emails bouncing right back. Uh, the the Charlie Kaufman uh, just had a new film. I'm thinking of ending things. He's still a part of the vernacular, but uh, that film didn't get a lot of love with our group. Mm. But a film that has gotten a lot of Charlie Kaufman love over the years. Adaptation is out in a new volume from uh, Shout Select, a new Blu-ray. And, uh, you know, I know both of you have some very strong thoughts about this film. Nicolas Cage in a double role as Charlie Kaufman. Meryl Streep, a self-reflexive film that, again, makes more sense than Tenet. Uh, and it wraps and folds back on itself in a meta-meta way, at least 50 different ways. Uh, really just an unbelievably unusual uh, film which uh, was then directed by Spike Jones, who also has his own weird meta meta ways of going about things. Thoughts about adaptation on Blu-ray and whether people should own this? Which, because that was adapted also from a book, right? That was that, that, that uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the Orchid Thief, uh, yeah. if, I'm, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. This was one of those moments where Nick Cage, um, uh, you know, came out of his, you know, tendency to make these completely bananas movies and just did some really, really extraordinary acting, creating you know the sort of Charlie Kaufman and, and, and his and, and Charlie's twin brother who doesn't actually exist. These two very dynamic characters, uh, versions of, uh, of of Charlie Kaufman, and I suppose maybe uh, his id or ego or whatever it might might be. So so that's that's what I loved about that movie. It was it was Nick Cage is back, um, uh, yeah. and then he went away again. Yeah. Yeah, but what I loved about it, what I loved about it is the fact that here's Charlie Kaufman, who as a writer in real life was having such an issue in adapting The Orchid Thief into a film that he decides to make, write a movie about how he's having trouble adapting The Orchid Thief into a movie. And so it, becomes, it becomes not only just an interesting meta folding on itself kind of thing, but it's the story, you know, removing all the layers deep down at its core. It's just about the creative process, you know, mm. and how how frustrating it can be and how sometimes you got to go through the side door to get that inspiration. And this is a film that really does it in in the best possible way, at least that I've seen, at least in the, in the, in the modern age. And this is one of the first times when Nicolas Cage started to become the Nicolas Cage who we now you know, laugh at and occasionally enjoy. I love Color Out of Space. I love Mandy. Um, I think that sometimes, by the way, this doesn't come out till next month, but um, I've seen a few episodes because Netflix sent it to me. He's got a new Netflix show, which is, it's like, there's six parts. Each part is yeah. only about 20 minutes and it's the history of, a, of, of, of another swear word. So it's a 20 minute history of the F word and a 20 minute history of the word bitch. 
and a 20-minute history of the word dick. And it's hosted by by um, Nicolas Cage, and it's great casting. He really only shows up the, at the beginning and the end. It's mostly talking heads. Uh, it's okay. The show's okay. It's it's funnier in it's funnier in theory than it is in practice. Um, but now that Nicolas Cage is just in full Nicolas Cage mode, and this is and by the way, there's the, now there's another Nicolas Cage film that he's attached to. Which is called like the unbearable, the unbearable burden of greatness, or something like that. Yeah, where he plays Nicolas Cage again. <laughs> does, does anyone know about this film? I I, I heard about it and uh, I rolled my eyes. I just don't know what to make of it. You know, Mandy. I I just I, all I could think of with Mandy was, uh, you know, Linus Roach. Never ever ever take your clothes off in a movie ever again. That's all I could think of with Mandy, but uh, you know. the unbearable weight of massive talent—that's what it's called. So it's called the unbearable weight of massive, the unbearable weight of massive talent, and it was written as it was written as a just as a as just as as, as a test, just as a spec script. It was just written just to get themselves an agent. These two writers, and it was about Nicolas Cage, who has no money, and he gets paid to make appearances at uh, birthday parties, and he agrees to appear at this billionaire's birthday party. And it spins off into sort of this uh, confessions of a dangerous mind type of idea where it just spins off into the CIA and drug kingpins and that kind of thing. And these two writers had written it as just, it was just a piece to get an agent. And it turns out it took on a life of its own and they actually got Nicolas Cage attached to this stupid thing. And now they're going to make it. And it's called The Unbearable Greatness of Massive Talent. So here is another example of Nicolas Cage doing that thing that we love him to be doing now. And a lot of that started with kind of with adaptation, right? Where he was dead. He was, he was sort of testing the waters of, of, of that meta thing, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks to Charlie Kaufman and Spike well, Jones. Ad- adaptation on Blu-ray from Shout Select, a special uh, edition that comes with uh, the original, original featurette, Stills Gallery, and a theatrical trailer. Gentlemen, thank you so much. It has been uh, it has been an unusual year, a crazy season for uh, for film viewing, for lap devoting, for everything else. Um, it's bizarre that I haven't actually seen either of you uh, in person for like almost a year. Oh, uh, yeah, right. It, it just it's it's blown by. So hopefully we remedy that sometime soon. And uh, meanwhile, to you, to both of you, and to all of our listeners, to everybody who recently celebrated Hanukkah, we, we wish you, obviously, a, a very happy concluded Hanukkah. To everyone who uh, has yet to celebrate Christmas or Kwanzaa or New Year's, we wish you the very merriest and happiest of those holidays as well. And uh, Mark, Tim, any other, any other closing thoughts for the listeners or for, uh, for you know, the ether? Uh, look, it's, it, it has been a wacky one. Uh, but uh, as we always say, uh, when we look back uh, in, in time and in, in, in history, particularly as you get toward our ages, um, you know, it's always kind of wacky, really. It always is kind of wacky. So it's just like also a wacky one right now, really. Mark? And don't forget, long live the theatrical experience. Everybody calm down. If the whole world goes to stream, you realize that if the whole world goes to streaming and that's all anybody ever makes, first of all, you are not going to get any more $225 million Avenger films because they're not going to spend that kind of money on a streaming film. 
right? So if you want your gigantic Avengers and IMAX and $50,000 trillion spent on a movie, you'd better hope the theatrical experience continues and it totally will. Yes, the game will change. And yes, Warner Brothers pissed off a lot of people, including myself and probably Wade and Tim. But in the end, the theatrical experience will live and it will live again in 2021. There we go. All right, we're going to let you guys go, and I will be back in just a moment to wrap the show up with uh, with a few final recommendations on Blu-ray and DVD. All right, sir. And I apologize, by the way, to the audience. I apologize for everything Wade's about to say. It's not my fault. <laughs> I spent years trying to convince him not to talk about the crap he's about to talk about. He wouldn't listen to me. So, you know, it's really, you can always just press stop on your on your iPhone if you want to stop listening. I'm just saying, you don't have to. <laughs> But, you know, if you don't want to hear Wade going on about some stupid anime garbage that you'll never see, just press stop on your iPhone. Just press stop. It'll be fine. All right. Mark and Tim have left, and I'm going to wrap this year out with uh, with just a few final recommendations for anybody that uh, might be so inclined to try and uh, salvage some part of what has been a pretty terrible year, I think, for everybody. Uh, I'm sitting here surrounded by pretty much all of the, uh, the DVDs that have come in uh, in kind of an onslaught last few weeks. Haven't been able to uh, obviously get together with Tim and go over a lot of this, so it's been left to me. And uh, I've had a little time since our uh, our voting concluded to uh, to kind of sort through some things and and uh, put together some recommendations for people. Some of these things I'd seen earlier in the year, others I had not. So uh, just want to start off with some newer movies that uh, some genre stuff, uh, The Dark and the Wicked is a horror film that might be uh, might be fun for horror film fans to check out from written and directed by Brian Bertino which is a it's a nice little constrained uh, relatively smart and very effective horror film um, about these uh, the, this brother and sister who uh, who have to kind of deal with grief uh, in an increasingly difficult way related to their mom and it, uh, it, it, it doesn't always make sense, but it's very effectively done. The scares are good and solid if you don't think too much about it. And uh, it's got a good kind of ghosty angle to it. So uh, The Dark and the Wicked is a film you might want to check out. Um, also, we talked about Nick Cage. Nick Cage shows up in uh, Jiu-Jitsu along with the great Tony Jaw. We are, of course, always big fans of Tony Jaw. The great uh, Thai kickboxer who uh, who's been so great in his own films. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu also doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Frank Grio is in this as well. Um, but you know what? If you like Nick Cage's excess, and Mark certainly seems to, uh, this is it, you know you you could do worse. Um, uh, it, it's kind of you know Nick Cage trying to uh, do something that really probably belongs more in a video game. But you know, uh, as far as uh, you know, schlocky Nick Cage movies go, uh, you could do worse than having a movie with Tony Jaw in it. Um, also in the uh, in the horror film vein is Jim Cummings's movie The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is also out in a Blu-ray edition that has a digital code on it that'll last you a good solid year before you have to uh, redeem it. Um, the nice thing about this one is it's got a really, really good cast. Uh, the uh, The it, it's probably relatively top tier. Robert Forster, always uh, an outstanding person to uh, put in a movie to give you some degree of credibility. This is all about a uh, kind of a, a, a 
what seems to be ordinary crime happening in a mountain village. And, uh, you know, bodies start showing up and there's sort of more to it, which, of course, will will reveal itself as having something to do with werewolves because there's always a full moon. So kind of a modern werewolf spin. The Rental is a uh, is a somewhat silly but effectively directed Dave Franco movie directed by Dave Franco. Um, the the brother of James Franco, for those who don't know, who's shown up in a lot of his movies. Um, basically, it's it's one of a number of movies now that are taking advantage of Airbnb and and things of the sort to sort of spin uh, rather scary narratives thereabouts. Uh, this is about a couple of couples who go to uh, a weekend trip at an Airbnb, which, of course, it turns out has been rented to them by a psychopath, and they start getting kind of picked off one at a time while they are uh, while they have been um, toyed with, let's say. Uh, again, really follows all the genre beats to, a, to an absolute perfect T. Doesn't do anything really remarkable. The acting is adequate. Um, you know, deserves probably, the, the cast deserves a better movie than this. But uh, written by Dave Franco and Joe Swanberg, who of course has his own uh, reputation as a filmmaker. And uh, they're mostly just exploiting, you know, taking a, taking a genre staple and imposing it on a kind of a new paradigm. Uh, again, well made, a little more intelligent than it, it, it you would normally get, but not as intelligent as we wished it would have been. Summerland is uh, written and directed by Jessica Swale. This is basically a vehicle for Gemma Arterton and some other wonderful British uh, actors and actresses. Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Tom Courtney and Penelope Wilton all show up in this. We love all of them. They are all wonderful, wonderful actors and actresses. And uh, it, basically, uh, the, the always wonderful Gemma Arterton plays a writer who um, is kind of detached from the world. And uh, World War II, unfortunately, forces that world that she has constructed around herself to change. And uh, she becomes um, kind of a mentor to this, uh, to this young boy who's a, an evacuee from London. And it is, uh, it is absolutely beautiful. It is very poetic. It didn't make a lot of uh, awards noise uh, with the, the first two groups of the year, ours and the New York Film Critics Circle. But I think um, it's still worth checking out. So you might want to give that a little look. Uh, we also have another horror film here that, uh, that's, that's okay. Also doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, it's got some good scares to it. Relic is... Um, kind of um it's a supernatural horror thriller uh about a mother who is um on her last legs and uh this is written and directed by natalie erica james who's a first timer so a lot of this is kind of a resume piece um but uh the basically the this this it centers around a, a woman played by emily mortimer uh, and her uh, daughter, who run to rescue their Emily Mortimer's mother from some what could be a fate worse than death. They're concerned that you know her dementia has has really kind of taken a much more uh, extensive toll. And what they find, what they walk into, is kind of a, a ghost movie slash haunted house movie with all kinds of uh, that's rooted around an ancient relic. And again if you try to piece it together in a way that makes any sense, it's just not going to work. So don't think too hard about it. Good scares though. 
then we also have 2067, which is a pretty decent uh, science fiction uh, drama slash thriller starring Cody Smith McPhee and Ryan Quantin. A uh, lot of new science fiction stories are kind of popping up lately because we can do the special effects very effectively now. And uh, this takes place, obviously, uh, in, you know, 47 years in the future, in the year 2067, where climate change has uh, forced everyone on the Earth to uh, basically live in kind of a, uh, uh, to live by breathing only artificial oxygen. And uh, there's a, there's an illness, a, uh, a pandemic of sorts then as well, which is um, the result of this artificial synthetic oxygen and it's uh, wiping people out, and uh, there is there 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 is a there's a way of resolving this, which becomes the thriller aspect of this. How do we rescue everyone from the pandemic that is killing them? Um, it, very interesting. Uh, obviously, relies entirely on a lot of uh, a lot of current paranoia about climate change and what it may or may not bring. So, if you're willing to suspend your your disbelief where this goes a little bit astray, you'll probably have a decent decent good time. Uh, next up here, let's see, got a couple of other things to, to make mention of. We were finally furnished a copy of The New Mutants on Blu-ray, the, uh, what is likely to be the final of the 20th Century Fox X-Men franchise, and deservedly so. These are all New Mutants, as the title obviously gives away. There's no connection really to the X-Men universe in any meaningful way that, uh, that will give fans anything to sort of hang on. It's done more like a horror film, uh, really kind of uh, fairly, fairly graphic in in ways that almost push the envelope of a PG thirteen film. Um, but obviously, you can tell that they've kind of run dry on the X Men, uh, the X Men franchise. There's nothing really left there, so that's going to all be reinvented momentarily within the next few years by uh, Marvel proper. Now that uh, 20th Century Fox has been acquired by Disney and they are all under the Disney Aegis and it is now 20th Century Films again. The Fox has been dropped from it. Lastly, a new film, The Assistant, written and directed by Kitty Green, is a great, great showcase for Julia Garner. This is getting a, a bit of awards attention, mostly for Julia Garner, who a lot of people will know from her award-winning turn on Ozark. Uh, this sort of piggybacks on the Harvey Weinstein scandal and other associated scandals, and uh, is a, um, a slice of life from the life of a woman who uh, works for a production company in New York. She's an assistant to a producer, and she, uh, she is consistently subject to the abuse of that producer, having to hide his sexual indiscretions, lie to his wife, um, enable him, as uh, would be the, uh, the appropriate term. And uh, it, is, it is pretty searing. It is very realistic for those of us who are familiar with instances that are similar to this and how Harvey Weinstein was able to, uh, to do what he did for as long as he did. Uh, so that's... That is something that is um, that you know is is really worth paying attention to. And then uh, I'll do one more here from the new films. Alone is uh, directed by John Hyams, the son of Peter Hyams, who's done, had made a bit of a career doing uh, lower budgeted uh, action films and thrillers lately. Um, this is actually this might be very well be the best film that John Hyams has ever done. Uh, it's about a woman who's moving. She has a little bit of baggage in life. We don't quite know why she's moving, but she's up in the woods and she's driving through some 
uh, mountainous terrain on her way somewhere, winds up being followed by someone, this guy, who tries to befriend her at a couple of stops along the way. And next thing you know, she's clobbered and she's a prisoner in his basement. And here she is in a cabin in the woods, uh, imprisoned by a psychopath. And uh, she is able to escape, but then it becomes a cat and mouse game with him. And it's all very, very boilerplate, but it's incredibly well done. Himes really, really turns the screws when he needs to. It's incredibly well cast. It's really well put together. Um, doesn't go much deeper than what I've already uh, mentioned, but you know, for, for what it is as an exercise in a particular kind of suspense, it's really, really top-notch. It's really worth checking out. And that is Alone from Magnet Releasing on Blu-ray. You know what? I'm going to give you one more still. The opening act. Uh, the opening act is a little independent film. Probably not really worth your time, but some of the supporting actors in it might uh, might be worth it. Steve Byrne wrote and directed this. And uh, it's uh, it stars Jimmy O. Yang as an aspiring stand-up. And uh, it's basically a story of a guy who's really trying to sort of make his way as a stand-up comic. He's trying to not just be the guy who introduces comics, but he's trying to be a comic himself, going to the clubs. He's willing to sacrifice a lot in his life, uh, go on the road, risk his relationship. Um, you know, it's, 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 the, it's another movie about the rigors of stand-up comedy and how hard it is to, to break in. Cedric the Entertainer uh, shows up as kind of a top-notch uh, stand-up comic who's fairly abusive to a lot of the people who are coming up behind him all about promoting himself um, you know uh, Jimmy O. Yang is not the most charismatic figure to to anchor a movie like this it probably needed a slightly better script as well uh, it's got some nice little you know cameos by by some name comics Ken Jong, Russell Peters, Bill Burr, Whitney Cummings all kind of show up to, to lend it a little bit of credibility but um in the end, it's really only do you want to see those characters? Do you want to see those comics in a movie? The movie itself doesn't really resonate terribly well. Uh, the opening act on Blu-ray. Some docs here as well that we should uh, give a little, throw a little, um, a little love at. Um, one, don't take it wrong. <laughs> the title is meant to just get your attention. Boobs. Um, the War on Women's Breasts. This is really, really informative, despite the obvious attention-grabbing title. It's a pretty serious um, documentary about uh, mammograms and uh, a lot of things that most women may not even know about related to mammograms. It, it perhaps veers a little bit too far onto the spooky side of, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's kind of an anti-vax sort of thing, um, but it does raise concerns about the misdiagnoses that have been uh, increasingly epidemic because of how mammograms are used. Worth paying attention to. Take some of it with a grain of salt. Don't let this be your only source. If you are concerned about mammograms, you're concerned obviously about breast cancer, uh, perhaps it's in, in your family, your wife, your mother, your daughter, your sister. Uh, give, it a, give it a look and, and then do your own research. Uh, it all you know, centers around obviously how widespread mammograms have become and do we rely too heavily on them. Uh, also a lovely, lovely documentary by Daniel Traub is called Ursula von Reidingsvard into her own. Um, Ursula von Reidingsvard is um, a legendary sculptor. And uh, if, you, if you're in any way sort of attached to the art world, you obviously know her name. 
And uh, this is just a, an absolutely beautiful um, look at her career, how she, you know, born during World War II in Poland and came to the United States as a refugee and um, how her family background and her, her family history and, you know, the, the world of New York in the 1970s uh, really all kind of informed her artistic sensibilities. We talked to just about everyone involved with her, everyone uh, who, ha who had any relationship to her and promoting her work. And it's, um, it's, it's a really, really great art documentary. Ursula von, von Reidingsvard, Into Her Own. Uh, definitely, definitely worth checking out. If you are uh, down on PC culture, you will want to check out No Safe Spaces, a, uh, a, a documentary about the uh, the fallout from political correctness and cancel culture from Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. Again, like most advocacy documentaries, it is very one-sided. It has its point of view. So uh, I, here again, as I, as with elsewhere, I would say take it with you know a grain of salt. If you if you come at it, you know you, you are of a different opinion. You're gonna want to do your own research and kind of round out some of the claims here, but. It is very, very persuasive uh, for what it is. It is called No Safe Spaces uh, from Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. White Riot is a, uh, a fascinating snapshot of a moment in time when uh, there were, this, this kind of goes back into the, the, uh, the late 1970s, just on the verge of, of Thatcherism in the UK when there was a far-right party known as the National Front, same name as the, the, the party in France, um, that was um, pushing for heavy, heavy anti-immigration policies. And there, was, uh, there were even some people in the rock and roll field who were very much in support of, of this, who are still alive, who are mentioned in this. And uh, the, there was pushback from another segment of the, the music industry, and they built a, an organization called Rock Against Racism. And this is the story of that. And it involved a lot of punk bands. The Clash were part of this. And uh, this is basically that history. And it's a fascinating history. And it's a really well-made documentary. Um, it, it sometimes, you know, focuses a little too much on particular personalities. It's not perfectly balanced. But in terms of uh, giving you a snapshot of that particular moment in time and the people involved, does a very, very good job. It's called White Riot. Um, <clears throat> City Dreamers is a, is a beautiful doc from a filmmaker named Joseph Hillel. <clears throat> this made the, uh, the festival rounds uh, in the last year or two and uh, deserves to. It, is, uh, it looks at four women architects who were central to changing the way that we look at our urban landscapes over the last uh, seven decades or so, uh, the uh, you probably have not heard of these uh, these architects because they're not up there with the the, the top tier uh, architects that usually the superstar architects that usually make all of the news. But Phyllis Lambert, Blanche Lemko van Ginkel, Cornelia Han Oberlander, and Denise Scott Brown are the architects, and uh, it is a wonderful tribute to them and to the work that they did. Uh, two docs to kind of wrap things out here. One is the Werner Herzog documentary Nomad in the footsteps of Bruce Chatwin. This is not one of Werner Herzog's best efforts. It is uh, recommended on Blu-ray only to people who are big, big, big Werner Herzog fans. Uh, it, it really all he does is he, he revisits his, 
friendship with the uh, with Bruce Bruce Chatwin, famous uh, adventurer and travel journalist, and you know, uh, an author and uh, kind of all around bon vivant, and uh, revisits what he did, the places he went, and um, and tries to kind of find commonality between their lives and their perspectives. Uh, it's a tribute to a friend, a tribute to somebody who, who was very meaningful to Herzog. But unless you are very, very deeply connected to uh, Herzog's attachment to Chatwin, it's probably not going to mean a whole lot to you. Uh, last documentary here before I get into some uh, some PBS stuff, which I'll roll through fairly quickly, is Route 1 USA. That's Route 1 slash USA by Robert Kramer. This is a two-disc documentary from Icarus. And uh, if you are familiar with Route 1 in any way, and you probably, if you're a documentary buff, you've probably been familiar with this for, for a long, long time. Um, Robert Kramer is kind of a, a guerrilla documentarian of sorts. And he, uh, he uh, in 1988, he, um, he returned to the United States after having lived for, for quite some time as an expat in France and made it a goal of his to basically document and chronicle a journey along the entirety of Route 1, uh, all the way from the border with Canada to Key West, uh, Florida. And it took him five months to do this. And this becomes kind of a travelogue through America. And uh, it, it is a fascinating one. It is a purely personal one. It's not meant to offer any point of view other than his own. It's, it's really just uh, how he sees America at this point in time on this route. It is a very narrow snapshot. But it is a chronicle. It is a document that belongs with other documents. Um, we all make documents of our own every time we turn our cameras on, every time we take a photograph or, or shoot some video. And this just happens to be one of his. But he is a very, very talented filmmaker, always has been. And uh, there's, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty impressive film. So, uh, you know, even though it was shot 30 years ago, it has now been restored. It looks better than ever. And... Uh, really under the in, under current circumstances deserves to to get a good long second look um a lot of great stuff from pbs lately uh nova's eagle power is a an absolutely delightful look at the uh the the eagles and what they mean in north america and uh, their their historical and uh, and natural power and their their relevance to the ecosystem um viral Anti-Semitism in Four Mutations is an absolutely uh, chilling look at the reemergence of, uh, of uh, anti-Semitism in the world uh, as it raises its head once again. Um, not exactly something I would recommend for the holidays, but something that is, uh, that is really worth checking out. Uh, Asian Americans is a... Is a um, it should be better. I, I, I'd love to give this the highest recommendation, but it is... It's, it, it should be better. It's five hours. It's very long. It's very thorough. It looks at the the entire legacy of Asian Americans in uh, uh, their, their history in America, their contributions to the culture and, and so forth. But um, it misses. There are a lot of blind spots in this, I'm sorry to say. And I, and I have some friends who were sort of subject to some of those blind spots. So um, again, as good as it is, it doesn't fully capture the history or the story. It's a good starting point. As with other things, um, do your own research and, and add to. Don't just let this be your uh, your final uh, stopping place. But again, five hours of the history of Asian Americans is a, is a wonderful tribute. Uh, also from PBS, 
The Vote, another great American experience documentary on the suffrage movement. And uh, looking back on the passage of the uh, 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote, uh, it, this looks at the, uh, the entire history of suffrage, what it meant at the time, what it means now. Really, really great history. Uh, very extensively done. Super, super professional. Uh, all of it on uh, two discs. One of the more elaborate American experience historical documentaries in quite a while. Um, prehistoric Road Trip is uh is a look at fossils and you know you may not think fossils are super cool and sexy but uh somehow the host of this thing emily grassley does a great job of making them so she basically centers around the dakotas wyoming nebraska montana that part of kind of central and north central uh, america to see what these fossils tell her about our ancient geologic time and uh, it's very, very well organized. It's not too wonky. And uh, it's kind of fun. And uh, you sort of feel like a kid again watching this. Uh, when you're a kid, you go searching for fossils, and you eventually think it's something that you, you grow out of. And for some of us, not so much. Uh, the Man Who Tried to Feed the World is another really, really remarkable American experience documentary that uh, l looks at the story of a man who tried to resolve India's famine uh, that devastated the the subcontinent in 1966 and um it, basically he's just an iowa farmer who you know norman borlaug was his name who uh thought that he could bring whatever knowledge he had and uh and and help revolutionize uh what was going on in india and eventually he was given the nobel peace prize in 1970 but um always remained a very controversial figure it's a really, really interesting doc. Definitely worth checking out. Islands of Wonder uh, is from BBC Earth, uh, also a PBS release. But um, this is just a beautiful travelogue of Hawaii, Borneo, and Madagascar, three of the most extraordinary island-based uh, uh, natural paradises on Earth. And uh, if you thought you knew them, you won't feel that way anymore after watching this. The photography is absolutely superb. My only regret is... It's not on Blu-ray, and it should be on Blu-ray. It, it screams for high-def treatment. Um, Opioids, Inc. Doesn't need any other introduction. That's a frontline doc in collaboration with the Financial Times looking at the opioid crisis. If you know already enough about it, you're probably not going to need it, but it's, it's still very good. Uh, let's talk menopause. Uh, Dr. Tara Allman and a variety of other experts address uh, the challenges of menopause, which are often kind of not really talked about. Uh, women and men tend to want to sweep that whole subject under the rug. But it is, um, it, it, there are health risks and health transformations involved in it, and this kind of shines a spotlight on it. It says, let's not sweep it under the rug anymore. Um, and she could be next is a documentary looking at the at how women of color are transforming american politics this was shot during the uh, 2018 midterm elections it's very very narrow and looks only at a handful of uh, of women in particular it is uh, it has a point of view it is advocacy cinema it uh, it may or may not fit your political point of view again do your own research take this as merely a component of that secret mind of slime from nova uh is 
is kind of icky. Uh, not for all tastes, but like a lot of Nova, it's extremely um, informational if you're willing to kind of suspend your, uh, your, your gag reflex while watching it. Uh, this, is, uh, this is about slime molds and uh, how one particular species of slime mold uh, actually has this um, has characteristics, we will say, that, uh, that could prove useful in research and uh, in, in helping understand other things about the world. Um, gets, it gets a little wonky, and again, it's kind of nasty, but the secret mind of slime it, for science people is, is probably just what the doctor ordered. Secrets of Royal Travel is, uh, it, it's really interesting. The, you may not know how the British royal family travels in America. We're obviously, obviously familiar with the uh, Air Force One and Air Force Two and the way that the president and vice president travel. But we may not know how the British royal family travels, and they travel very, very well. And uh, this is two different programs originally made for Channel 5 in the UK that look at the opulence of uh, plane and train travel for the royal family. And it's a lot of fun. It's actually a lot of fun. If you, if you really want to kind of be wowed, it's worth checking out. Uh, a few more from PBS and then, uh, and then uh, three from National Geographic to wrap this out. Um, we have, uh, let's see, The Queen and the Coup, which uh, is a rather extraordinary look at a little-known story which centers around the, um, what the role that Queen Elizabeth II played in 1953 at the time of the change in the uh, Iranian government. That is a very, very much debated event. When uh, the Shah was installed and Mossadegh was overthrown, the role of the CIA, the role of Britain's MI6, um, there's a lot of debate as to what happened. A lot of people don't quite understand the workings of Iranian politics at the time. The typical story is that Western powers overthrew a democratically elected leader and installed a monarch. Not quite what the story actually is. It's much more nuanced and complicated than that. But the role that Queen Elizabeth II played is really interesting and probably not well known at all. So uh, to that extent, this is a very, very interesting doc, but not long enough. It's only 60 minutes long. Probably needs more. And then we have Human Nature, which is uh, all, looks at CRISPR, uh, C-R-I-S-P-R. This is a Nova documentary, and CRISPR is the... Uh, the the DNA splicing tool. It's kind of like uh, what a, what you know Final Cut is to movies. CRISPR is to to genes. It can splice and edit and do all kinds of things that are amazing and on some level scary. And this is all about uh, you know can it cure diseases? Yes. Can it also help create all kinds of scary genetic mutations? Perhaps. Um, anyway, it's Human Nature from Nova. It's very very good. The first alphabet, A to Z, how writing changed the world, also from Nova. Uh, if you are a writer or if you're, you love the history of language and writing, as I do, you will really get a kick out of this. This is a really, really fascinating uh, look at where the whole idea of alphabets originated, the, the most ancient societies that uh, first brought writing and alphabets and recorded language to the fore and, and enabled it for the rest of us. It's a, it's a wonderful history. Very, very informa uh, informative. And then from National Geographic, 
Uh, we have three new seasons of uh, shows that need no introduction. I'm just going to share these with you. When Sharks Attack, season six. I'll give you a clue. In season six, they don't attack any differently than they did in seasons one through five. Secrets of the Zoo, Tampa, in season two. Um, really a lot of fun to watch. This is, uh, you know, the, the zoo in Tampa is not one of the most well-known zoos to a lot of people, but it's it's a pretty great zoo. Got a, it's very rich in the uh, the animals that it has. And uh, the people who work there are dedicated to what they do. This is on two discs, six episodes. Um, very, very interesting if you don't know what goes on in the zoo. And then Wicked Tuna, Outer Banks, is in season seven, if that is even comprehensible to you. I was vaguely aware of when this uh, debuted seven years ago, and somehow they have kept it going. So this is a uh, basic, effectively, this is a, a, a documentary series, it's kind of like Dirty Jobs and uh, Ice Truckers, except in this case, it's about tuna fishermen. And somehow, I don't know how they do it, but they, they have managed to squeeze out seven episodes of uh, drama centering on... Uh, people who who fish for tuna and it is uh it is sometimes really enthralling and sometimes incredibly repetitive uh we also have some music stuff to recommend um on the classical end of things uh a, a this is all from naxos these are all on blu-ray and uh all of them will make a wonderful wonderful gift at this late stage, not obviously not for Christmas, but wonderful gifts for people who really, really love uh, classical music. The uh, Mikhailovsky Ballet from St. Petersburg performing La Bayadere. Uh, really just incredibly beautiful uh, ballet. Um, a wonderful performance of uh, Schubert's Symphony in B minor, the otherwise uh, known as the Unfinished Symphony, and Tchaikovsky's Concerto for Piano and Orchestra Number no. 1 from Martha Argrich and Daniel Barenboim, two absolute legends, and the West Eastern Divan Orchestra. That's from Unitel via Naxos. Couldn't, it's just an absolutely stunning performance. Uh, Herbert von Karajan and Anne-Sophie Mutter and the Berlin Philharmonic performing Vivaldi's Four Seasons, Beethoven's Violin Concerto, uh, and um, the um, Bach Violin Concerto Number no. 2. Really superb. This from C Major and Sony Classical. The Royal Swedish Ballet performing Escapist with, an, with a K, E-S-K-A-P-I-S-T. Uh, by Alexander Ekman, uh, not a ballet. It's a modern ballet I was not familiar with. It's a little bit uh, um, modern for my taste, but still uh, for dance aficionados, a, a good a good thing to consider. Uh, Beethoven and Bruckner, the Beethoven Piano Concerto Number no. Four and Bruckner Symphony Number no. Seven, uh, performed by the Vienna Philharmonic, Emmanuel Axe and Bernard Heitink. Uh, a, a, this is the, this is Heitink's alleged farewell to the Salzburg festival. And, uh, it's, a, it, it's quite a performance. We also have, uh, if you are a fan of Jules Massenet, you'll enjoy these two Blu-rays. Massenet's Cendrillon, otherwise known as Cinderella, and Don Quixote, otherwise known as Don Quixote. Uh, the uh, former is from, uh, Glyndebourne. And the latter from uh, C major, two new and absolutely wonderful performances. Um, also, Placido Domingo's Opera Gala, 50 Years at the Arena di Verona from Verona in Italy. 
just mostly highlights here, but uh, you know, this is for Plasto Domingo fans and really very nicely transferred on Blu-ray. Uh, and the Royal, uh, the Royal Ballet and the Royal Opera House uh, and the Orchestra of the Royal Opera House conducted by Pavel Sorokin doing um, Dmitry Shostakovich's uh, Concerto with Kenneth, Mac Kenneth Macmillan. Uh, Enigma Variations by Edward Elgar and uh, Raimonda Act Three um, by uh, Alexander Glazanov and uh, with Rudolf Nureyev. Very, very nice from Opus Arte. And then lastly, uh, Offenbach's Orpheus in Hell, Orphée aux Enfers, with the Vienna uh, Philharmonic. A pretty aggressively staged version of that. Not really my taste, but I am not the uh, I am not the final arbiter. Um, a lot of great stuff as well from Kino. A lot of uh, from their Studio Classics line. Want to make particular mention of some of this. Ladybug, Ladybug from director Frank Perry, written by his wife Eleanor Perry, one of the great all-time screenwriters, and Perry himself, no slouch as a director. Uh, this is a... Um, this is a... Uh, set during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and the impact on a small rural elementary school and everyone uh, related to it. Um, quite uh, quite powerful, done not on a big budget, but it uh, at a time when the, the, the Russian kind of uh, nuclear panic was starting to really, really reach a pitch. Uh, this is a profoundly powerful film. Made in 1964, Really, really worth checking out. Uh, it has an audio commentary by Richard Harlan Smith, film historian. It gives you all the context that you could possibly need. And then if you still need more uh, of a fix from Frank Perry, you could watch his more famous Diary of a Mad Housewife. His most famous film, for my money, is, is uh, David and Lisa, which I absolutely unreservedly adore, uh, also written by his wife. But um, the uh, most people tend to associate him with Diary of a Mad Housewife, which is a great cast. Richard Benjamin, a young Frank Langella, and Carrie Snodgrass, made in 1970, right when Frank Langella was starting to become a thing. Uh, Larry Karashevsky, the screenwriter, who works with Scott Alexander, writing such things as Man in the Moon and a lot of other great movies. Uh, he does the uh, commentary here, kind of hosts it with two film historians, Howard S. Berger and Steve Mitchell, which is really, really quite wonderful. Um, the, uh, the film itself is a little bit notorious, but, uh, did win a, uh, an Oscar nomination for Carrie Snodgrass and very, very deservedly. And Franklin Gella is also really superb in it. Very much, you know, about the, uh, sexuality in 1970 coming out of the sexual revolution, moving into the seventies, really kind of trying to tap that. Uh, a couple from Billy Wilder, the little known Billy Wilder film, Five Graves to Cairo. Uh, is uh, is pretty great. It's not a typical Billy Wilder film. Uh, you know, he he wrote it with Charles Brackett. It's a good script. It's um, uh, you know, it's it's solid. It's kind of a programmer for them. This was made in 1943 during World War II. Just so everyone understands, during World War II, a lot of people were really kind of um, making films that were rooted in World War II. Sort of pseudo propagandistic. There's a little bit of that here. Uh, it's it's why Eric von Stroheim shows up in this thing and would, of course, later show up in uh, Sunset Boulevard for, for Billy Wilder. Um, he plays General Rommel here, von Stroheim does. It's all about, uh, it kind of centers around the, the desert campaign in, in North Africa. Um, 
you know, it, it, it again, interesting film in Billy Wilder's filmography only for completists, but much more for the Wilder fans is The Lost Weekend, which uh, was an extraordinary film at the time. 1945, two years later, won Best Actor for Ray Milland and then won Best Picture in the same ceremony. Um, kind of the original great depiction of alcoholism and uh, it, it overshadows Days of Wine and Roses, which is equally good in many respects, but this was uh, this is the one that really, really knocked it out of the park and kind of brought it to the fore as a, as a movie subject had not really been wrestled with in the movies prior to this. Uh, and Billy Wilder just, it's one of his best films and has an amazing score by uh, Miklos Rosa. Audio commentary by our uh, good friend and colleague, Joe McBride, um, who really knows this film inside out and gives a wonderful, wonderful summation. There's also radio adaptation and trailers from hell with Mark Pellington. Uh, director himself of many, many great films. Um, Fellini's Casanova with Donald Sutherland is also on Blu-ray. It's a little surprising that this uh, Universal let this go is just kind of a, uh, a, a simple release to, to Kino. Good for Kino for bringing it out, but um, it this is a movie that demands almost a Criterion release. It's not one of Fellini's great films, but it is it is one of his... Um, one of his more significant films. Uh, Sutherland is interesting as Casanova, maybe not perfectly cast, but everything else about the film is luxurious and beautiful. There's a, there's a great score by Nino Rota and, you know, fantastic costumes and uh, the art and set direction are just absolutely wonderful. Um, the, uh, there's also an alternate Italian audio track on this because a lot of these things were shot that way at the time. And uh, an audio commentary by Nick Pinkerton. Um, so Fellini's Casanova, forget it, not because this is a great Blu-ray, but because you're probably not going to get a better one anytime soon. W.C. Fields is hilarious and never give a sucker an even break from 1941. This is sort of late W.C. Fields, but it's still great. It was the last film that he would ever make. And uh, it, he it's, it's just lots of great bits lots of really really great bits it's kind of the last gasp of vaudeville in the 1940s and uh it's it's a, it's really really de delightful edward f klein directed this who of course was a big shorts director in the silent period and uh it's hilarious you're, you're, i mean it's just you're watching it for wc fields to so just let loose uh jack webb in dragnet most famous, obviously, as a radio program that then became a television show that was then resurrected in the 1960s again as a Jack Webb television show. Um, but in there, tucked right in the middle, this became a movie in 1954. And uh, it was writ written by Richard Breen and directed by Jack Webb. And uh, doesn't necessarily trans transcend the 50s series, but if you want to know how they got from the 50s series to the resurrected series in the 1960s, this is kind of the connective tissue. And you can see how Jack Webb is, is sort of migrating his thinking from one series to the other. Uh, so uh, this includes both uh, widescreen and full screen versions because it was, of course, uh, aired on television uh, and you know, was framed for it as well. So um, and an interesting commentary from uh, film historian Toby Roan um <clears throat> go through some of these others really quickly as long as we're talking about uh, great film comics jane russell and bob hope in the pale face um it, kind of this one's been done to death uh before it's been released a lot never before on blu-ray so this is kind of a, a welcome release 1948 film 
um a, you know a silly little spoof of westerns bob hope is funny and jane russell is just being jane russell and uh great commentary on here by uh, sergio mim um a few little few little extras that are that are negligible but otherwise you're watching it mostly for bob hope louis mall made crackers also with donald sutherland and uh, a, a young sean penn and jack warden in 1984 uh a bit of an unusual film for louis mall who at the time is kind of just trying to keep his american uh chops sharp the um if you want to it's again not a great louis mall film not a typical louis mall film uh it's a remake of big deal on madonna street uh which was a, a great italian caper comedy at the time doesn't really make the transition to an american comedy very successfully a little peculiar the way that it's done but it is very nicely shot by the great laszlo kovacs which is kind of something to hang your hat on and there's a commentary by daniel kramer and uh scott tafoya that kind of gives you a little bit more context into why this film and, and why everything about it. Bodies Rest in Motion uh, was a, is a, a pretty good Michael Steinberg film uh, with a pretty great cast from 1993. Uh, Phoebe Cates, Tim Roth, Eric Stoltz, and Bridget Fonda in one of these sort of quintessential 90s ensemble dramas about angsty young people, Gen Xers, um, trying to figure out life and love and, and everything else. It's funny, it's touching, it's heartbreaking. Um, pretty smartly written. Captures the era very, very effectively. Steinberg's a good director. And, um, you know, it doesn't, uh, doesn't transcend the genre. If you're more inclined to something like St. Elmo's Fire, that's probably a more typical film of the era with that cast. But um, for, for this, it's, it's, a, it's a decent film. Uh, audio commentary by uh, Steinberg, along with Eric Stoltz and Roger Hedden, who wrote the screenplay. And then uh, a couple of new introductions by Michael Steinberg and Roger Hedden. Uh, then we also have The Return of the Musketeers. Richard Lester revisiting his, uh, uh, his 1973 Three Musketeers and 1974 Four Musketeers crew. In 1989, he brought the band back together again, and not as successfully, but uh, it was, if you're a fan of those first two films, it's pretty great. I mean, it's, it's hard not to, it's hard to resist getting the band back together, even if they don't quite have the same uh, pizzazz and sizzle. It's still funny. It still has, you know, some, some great supporting performances, too. Geraldine Chaplin is wonderful in this, and, and uh, you know. Uh, it, it's fine. Uh, audio commentary from uh, Peter Tonget, film historian. Uh, again, gives you all the necessary background and, uh, and, and information that you need. Um, let's also include just a few more here. We've got another volume of Film Noir. Film Noir, The Dark Side of Cinema 4. They are, I don't want to say scraping the bottom of the barrel, but they are certainly scraping for titles that are that are way outside of what norm, most people have probably even heard of. The three films included here are Six Bridges to Cross, An Act of Murder, and Calcutta. None of them are epic, legendary noir. All of them have a little something worth paying attention to. So for noir fans in particular, you're probably going to really want to uh, focus on Calcutta, which stars Alan Ladd. Uh, and and William Bendix, really a, a very very good uh, a very very good minor noir for its time, uh, directed by the father of Mia Farrow, John Farrow. 
and uh, an act of murder is probably uh, you know the the second one on the tier here with uh, Edmund O'Brien. Six bridges to cross is uh, is is kind of the minor the minor one that's a little bit of a ringer. Uh, my science project with John Stockwell, Fisher Stevens, and Dennis Hopper made in 1985 came in at the same time as uh, Real Genius, and there were you know all of the films that were dealing with uh, with science at the time. Uh, so there was Real Genius, My Science Project, and and uh, a couple of others. Um, this is, uh, and whichever one was, was directed by uh, uh, John Hughes. John Hughes had the uh, the one there with uh, uh, with the, his his usual standbys. Uh, this is uh, this you know kind of uh, fits right in there with all of those. It's not, it's not, it doesn't. It's not the best of the whole thing, but a lot you know. It's it's got it's got. A few things going. Um, Mike McPadden and Cat Ellinger do the audio commentary, and then Fisher Stevens, who's gone on to be a very, very good filmmaker and producer and financier in his own, uh, is also featured in a uh, an interview. DC Cab is uh, you know famous basically because it has Mr. T and because it was directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, but it is it dates rather poorly. I hate to say. Uh, Irene Cara is wonderful in it. Adam Baldwin also very, very good in it. But it's kind of uh, an artifact of the early '80s, and uh, really only of interest just because it's, you know, it's an artifact of the '80s. Um, gotcha. As long as we're talking about Anthony Edwards, uh, Gotcha is uh, one of those uh, one of those younger boys, um, one of those y- young man's. Uh, wish fulfillment movies maybe a way to put it it it, it it's not quite what it wants to be but it's uh, you know the idea is that gotcha is this paintball game that they play in college and uh it winds up becoming a movie about seduction which a lot of movies in the 80s were they were all kind of you know these teen seduction movies and then it winds up becoming kind of a spy film and it doesn't really mix its genres very well. They're they're kind of awkwardly mashed together. As a seduction movie is is kind of one of those young sex comedies. It probably would have worked better once it starts getting into KGB and you know mid level Cold War stuff. It's not quite so engaging. The River is a particularly great movie that was made the same year as Country. Uh, some people might remember you know Country was with uh, Sam Shepard. And the river is with uh, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson and Sissy Spacek are the couple here, and uh, it, it, both films are primarily focused on the plight of farmers, which was really a thing in the mid '80s. This is from 1984. Um, there was a lot of question about farmers not having enough to get by, needing subsidies, and so the plight of farmers in the early to mid '80s um, gave us two different films. Country is much grittier. This is much more pastoral. Mark Rydell, who did uh, On Golden Pond, directed it, gave it that glowing sensibility that he had come to kind of make his own. And it also features an absolutely beautiful score by uh, John Williams. So, and shot by Vilmos Zygmunt, who of course did Close Encounters and, and many other fine films. So um, if you can get past the fact that it's a little bit uh, rose-colored for the subject that it's trying to tell, the, the plight of American farmers, Mel Gibson is superb. Sissy Spacek is great. Scott Glenn in the supporting performance, uh, just right on the heels of uh, being in the right stuff. Um, a lot of fine, fine contributions here, but especially that John Williams score, which is just absolutely great. 
couple of Robert Redford things to make mention of. One in front of the camera, one behind it. Uh, Sidney Pollack directs Robert Redford and Melina Olin in Havana, which is an old-fashioned melodrama uh, made in 1990s set against the, uh, the, the, the days just preceding uh, the uh, Cuban Revolution when Fidel Castro took power uh, from, uh, from Somoza. And um, um, or from Batista, sorry, from Batista, getting my getting my uh, Latin American dictators mixed up. Um, but uh, you know, interesting interesting thing here. Mark Rydell also shows up as an actor in this, the director of The River. Um, the movie itself is a little bit um, too concerned with Robert Redford and his hair and making him look great and kind of. Uh, building off of the Robert Redford uh, mystique. There's a little bit too much of that going on here, but you know, it's a Sidney Pollack film. It's super professional. And Lena Olin is always wonderful. Robert Redford then directed the Milagro Beanfield war, which uh, came eight years after his Oscar winning uh, work on uh, ordinary people. And it's not, even remotely up to snuff with ordinary people. Uh, it's it's a subject that obviously means a great deal to him, but it just didn't um, it didn't quite click. It feels almost like a like a TV movie. It's very much about um, you know a, a kind of a small rural incident. It's very well made. Um, it uh, you know it has a lovely score by Dave Grusin, who also wrote the music to Havana. Um, but it, um, it just doesn't really, really quite click. It has an audio commentary by Chick Venera, who stars in it, along with film historian Daniel Kramer. And then the last of the, uh, the uh, keynote titles that I'm going to talk about here is one of the best films of the past 30 years, Grace of My Heart, uh, which is an absolutely extraordinary film. I wish there were a more elaborate special edition of this thing. There is not, so we're going to have to live with this Blu-ray for a good long time, but I'm grateful to have it. I'm not going to, not going to complain. Written and directed by Allison Anders, this thing should have had piles of Oscar nominations. Uh, it's an absolutely extraordinary uh, movie about a songwriter uh, and her, her entire life and her experience and all the people that she worked with in the, uh, in the 1960s, primarily. It is loosely based on uh, Carol King. Obviously, nothing here really, really is. A, there's no Carol King songs. It's not, you know, evocative of her life. But it's really, really, really damn good. It's a really outstanding film. The songs that were written for it by Burt Bacharach and Elvis Costello, every single one of them is amazing. Um, the film is beautifully directed. It has an incredible cast. Ileana Douglas in the lead part should have won an Academy Award. Uh, it's criminal that she wasn't even nominated. Uh, John Turturro is great. Eric Stoltz is great. Matt Dillon is great. Um, Patsy Kensett, Bruce Davidson. Uh, it, it's just a really, really good movie. It was released at the time by Gramercy Pictures, which exists no more. It was folded into Focus a long time ago. But Grace of My Heart, if you if you saw the movie, if you own the soundtrack and you listen to it repeatedly as I do, um, you know it's an absolutely enthralling, enthralling movie. You just it, it's it's just superb. Um, also, we've had a lot of wonderful stuff come out lately from uh, the, uh, the Warner Archive collection. I'm going to go through a few of them because it's Warner Archive is just doing such an amazing job with their, their stuff. And we've, uh, you know, we, we, we want to really shine a spotlight on a lot of this. Um, Judy Garland was a huge, huge fixture at MGM. 
All those old MGM films now belong to the Warner Brothers Library, and they are doing right by them. Judy Garland in The Harvey Girls, uh, also with uh, Ray Bolger from The Wizard of Oz, and Angela Lansbury is just an absolutely beautiful kind of old-fashioned period, um, a, a period Americana, you know? It's it's what she did in, in so many other great films. Um, Meet Me in St. Louis, for example. Uh, it, it's just, you know... Uh, in the good old summertime, all of that is Judy Garland really immersing herself in the beauty of Americana. And the same thing happens in the Harvey girls, um, which is kind of uh, set during a very particular glamorous and old West period. It's wonderful. A lot of great uh, pieces in here on the action speak and the Santa Fe is what won the uh, Academy award for best original song in uh, 1946. And that's the one that everybody really remembers this for, but it, it is otherwise just a, an absolutely superb film directed by George Sidney, one of the great, musical directors of all time. Judy Garland and Gene Kelly uh, together again in The Pirate uh, with amazing songs by Cole Porter, beautifully, beautifully photographed. You know what? It, it, and it makes no sense whatsoever, and it doesn't need to because you're looking at Judy Garland and, and Gene Kelly, and that's, that's enough here. Lots of wonderful extras on here, including a commentary by historian John Fricke, a making-up featurette and a cartoon and a short and the whole program uh, put together so you get the complete experience. There are some song outtakes and uh, even some promotional radio interviews with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland that are really quite a hoot. Uh, it gives you a sense of how things were promoted back then. Um, and uh, a, lot of great, a lot of great numbers in here. Be a Clown, which of course was um, most people remember from Singing in the Rain, but it's, it, it originally comes from The Pirate. We also have uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn in Without Love, which features a, a pretty wonderful supporting turn from uh, Lucille Ball as well. Uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, Keenan Wynn is great in this too. Uh, just a super, absolutely a, a whole lot of fun. So even though it's all about Tracy and Hepburn doing what they do uh, and, and uh, really just at the max, turning their shtick up to 11, um, they're, the supporting cast holds its own, and it's very, very funny. So uh, that's worth checking out without love. Um, also, Tracy and Hepburn in Pat and Mike, which is the more famous film. This is one of the the, the epic uh, Tracy Hepburn collaborations of all time, written by Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan, directed by George Cukor. It, this is just one of the all-time great American romantic comedies and a, a sort of a perfect primer along with Adam's rib on what uh, Tracy and Hepburn do so, so well together. Um, Tracy in particular is just never been better. More Tex Avery classics, including a lot of droopy in Tex Avery Screwball Classics Volume 2. Uh, I am a droopy fanatic, so I am elated that this is out. Uh, this has just so many fun things. Drag Along Droopy is one of my all-time favorites. And Dixieland Droopy. I'm so glad that those are those are out here. But you get other stuff too. You get uh, Three Little Pups and uh, and and Little Rural Riding Hood. Um, it's it's you know Tex Avery belongs in the same class with Chuck Jones. Absolutely perfect. I'm glad we got Volume Two of that out. A uh, complete series of Space Ghost and Dino Boy is you know a little weird and dated. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's definitely uh, Hanna Barbera at their most eccentric and peculiar. But um, you know what? I it, somehow anything related to Space Ghost has a following, so I'm I'm going to make a mention of it. A uh, few more here that uh, are 
definitely worth paying attention to. One, if you obviously Star Trek fans will uh, will be enthralled to know that Genesis Two and Planet Earth are out in a two film collection. These are two attempts by uh, Gene Roddenberry to uh, to try to launch a new series on par with uh, Star Trek. Neither of them worked, but they're both quite interesting, and they both have a lot of uh, great ideas in them. And and you know, typical Gene Roddenberry. Um, fusion of high-mindedness and, and pulpiness. And um, they're both together on one Blu-ray, a two-film collection now from Warner Archive, Genesis 2 and Planet Earth. The two failed pilots, and uh, it makes for a movie together. Gary Cooper's Academy Award-winning performance in Sergeant York, also in a an absolutely tremendous Blu-ray. Uh, beautifully, beautifully transferred. The black and white has never looked looked better. And um, it, this is, of course, the story of a famous World War I legend, a World War I war hero who uh, refused to, to actually use a gun. And he, he wound up capturing 132 German soldiers during the Battle of the Argonne. And uh, it, it's, it's an inspiring story. It's, a, it's kind of a pacifist war hero story. It's really, really great. Uh, Gary Cooper and Sergeant York, just an absolutely perfect movie and uh, directed, of course, by the great Howard Hawks. Sunday in New York uh, has kind of lost a little bit of its luster over time, but from for a, you know, it it still has that great 19, early nineteen sixties um, romantic vibe to it that we associate with so many great uh, great movies from that period. That that kind of groovy hipster madmen moment. Um, Cliff Robertson, Rod Taylor, and Jane Fonda, along with Jim Backus and Robert Culp. It's a it's a terrific cast. It really captures that uh, that pastel colored uh, swingery hipstery too much hairspray and uh, and slightly too well trimmed suits moment. Uh, we tend to think about Rock Hudson and Doris Day as kind of typifying this, but uh, Cliff Robertson does a great job, as does Jane Fonda. Uh, they all really kind of round out this particular kind of romantic comedy beautifully. Rod Taylor is 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 one of the better things that he's ever done. It's based on a play by Norman Krasna, but it, it, it's more than the play. Krasna did the adaptation himself and opened it up and gave it a, a much bigger bigger landscape and a bigger canvas. Uh, and then uh, Robert, uh, Robert Ryan and John Wayne in the Flying Leathernecks, or just Flying Leathernecks, no the. This was one of those John Hughes films that uh, he tried to, uh, where he tried to sort of do what he wanted. Hughes, Hughes always wanted to make bigger films, and I think he had uh, the opportunity to make. So he tried to sort of do another big aviation landscape here, um, which you know he, he had he had done in his first film, obviously. Um, and uh, it's uh, you know he didn't direct this. Nicholas Ray directed this, but it's still it's it's a very ambitious film about uh, fighter squadron, marine fighter squadron uh, during the Battle of Guadalcanal. And um, it, it has a lot of really impressive stuff in it. They, a lot of the, the actual air footage is actual film that was shot during dogfights during, uh, during the Pacific Theater. Um, but it's, you know, it's melodramatic and um, perhaps a little too ambitious for its own good, but still a lot of fun to watch. Mentioned Judy Garland's turn in, uh, in The Good Old Summertime. Well, that film was actually based on an earlier Ernst Lubitsch film called The Shop Around the Corner, which is also out on Blu-ray. And uh, this also should have gotten a Criterion release or something uh, more flamboyant. 
Um, it has almost no special features on it. There's just a, a radio broadcast and uh, a, a featurette, but it's still a great film. Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart, uh, The Shop Around the Corner, one of the w- most wonderful of Ernst Lubitsch's romances. Um, absolutely a must-see for anybody that wants to, to bone up on the, the all-time American romantic comedy classics. Um, more recently, this was remade. It is the Tom Hanks film. Uh, and Meg Ryan in uh, in uh, uh, You've Got Mail. Uh, so, you know, the story of how two people who think they hate each other and wind up through correspondence falling in love, uh, not realizing who they are, continues to have legs. I would wager that that's going to get remade again, probably in a, in a, in a, as a Twitter story anytime soon. Uh, it, it's still a great story and a lot of fun if you can get the right actors to play it. Um, let's see. And, uh, maybe just a couple others here from the, uh, from the Warner titles. Um, Mr. Roberts, I'll make mention, I'll, I'll cover the, the genres here and then, uh, give you a few anime to wrap things out. Uh, the curse of Frankenstein with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, uh, doing what they did with all that great hammer stuff. This is, um, it, you know, uh, one of the classic hammer films from the period, there are two discs here. It is loaded with extras, all of them new. Uh, looking back on this film and why it was relevant at the time, um, I, I I don't know that this is um, a great Frankenstein film per se, but it's a significant one. It is a historically relevant one because this is when Frankenstein pivoted from being a, uh, a, a universal franchise to something that others were able to make their own. So Frankenstein is an iconic uh story for both universal and hammer films and this helps you understand how that how that pivot took place uh the featurettes in fact are probably more interesting than the movie these days and then mr roberts one of the all-time classic uh military comedies absolutely priceless henry fonda is great but he's hardly the best thing about it jack lemon may be the best thing about it and james cagney is also terrific and somehow william powell manages to uh to hold it, hold his own against all of these other very fine and funny actors. Uh, co-directed by John Ford and Mervyn Leroy. Mervyn Leroy, of course, the great Warner Brothers director who would uh, go on to produce The Wizard of Oz. And um, he and John Ford, two totally different directors, but it it uh, it doesn't show any seams from having had uh, two men in the chair. And um, you know, it it's uh, it's more innocent than something like Catch Twenty Two. This is not cynical. It just says. Funny things happened on ships during World War II, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna tell you we're gonna give you a good time. This was, of course, originally a Broadway play. Uh, Henry Fonda won a Tony for his part in this, and uh, he's equally wonderful in the movie. It includes a commentary by Jack Lemmon, recorded obviously before he uh, he passed many many years ago, and a trailer. And uh, then just a few anime to uh, make quick mention of. Some really wonderful stuff came out. We, uh, I believe, on the la- one of the last shows, we talked about weathering with you, which I, I want to give a special attention to. This is this came out last year, technically a 2019 film. A lot of people in our in the, in Lafka wanted to try and give this uh, consideration for 2020 because it was also released more widely in 2020. But uh, an absolutely beautiful film from G Kids and Shout Factory. Fantastic 4K UHD uh, disc in this. Really amazing not a lot of anime on 4k and uh this makes all the most of it makoto shinkai uh directed your name previously and then segued into this 
this is a um, this is not as good as your name, but boy, it awfully it, it comes awfully awfully close, and uh, it's it's just an absolutely wonderful wonderful story. Um, we also have uh, the complete series of Cowboy Bebop from Funimation in a steelbook. Cowboy Bebop can it was supposed to be a feature film at some point. I don't know if it's still going to be. Certainly deserves to be if they can do it right. The the animation and the story are fantastic. Um, all about kind of a, it's almost like a, a Guardians of the Galaxy type thing uh, that's going on here. These the, this this rogue group uh, that you know roams the the galaxy. Um, very similar in a lot of respects. Kind of you know intergalactic uh, guns for hire, um, mercenaries, bounty hunters. And uh, audio commentaries and a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff on this. Uh, it's a beautiful steelbook. Definitely worth uh, worth owning for an anime fan. Keiichi Hara is a, uh, one of the lesser-known of the great current crop of, uh, of anime geniuses. And um, this is The Wonderland. This is a Blu-ray and DVD combo set from uh, G-Kids and Shout Factory. Uh, again, it is uh, it tells a story of a um, a young girl who, uh, w- via the um, magic of an alchemist, is transported into a magical world. It's the Alice in Wonderland trajectory, given a a little bit of an anime treatment, and uh, with a lot of really interesting, uh, fantastic, mythical journey stuff folded in on top of it. It's very very fun, very smart, and difficult to kind of get a get ahead of. You can it, it's not overly complicated like a lot of anime is, but it is uh, just just complicated enough. Includes uh, some featurette stuff, audio commentary with one of the character designers, and a cast interview. And uh, then just to kind of uh, underline a few things that continue to that don't really need any introduction, but they continue to uh, make waves. Uh, Digimon Adventure has a new release, The Last Evolution Kizuna. That's a Blu-ray DVD combo. Um, Black Clover is out in uh, part one of season three. That continues to be kind of more of the same. Doesn't really need a further introduction from me. Uh, One Piece, season 10, Voyage 2. Honestly, it's season 10, people. I don't know why they aren't doing this on Blu-ray. It's still only on DVD. Uh, Fairy Tale... Collection uh, 24, the final season. Uh, these are, this brings the total episodes to uh, 303. And my goodness, what an odyssey it has been. The last few here. Um, RWBY, Volume 7. Actually, one of the better seasons of that from what I could see. Uh, Galaxy Angel, AA plus S at Galaxy Angel X. You know, it skews kind of young. The, the 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 girls and their colored hair, and and it's it it's kind of juvenile. Um, you sort of ought to be like a tween, but if you have a if you have a tween daughter who's about 12, 13, 14, uh, the Galaxy Angel stuff is uh, probably a lot of fun. So I'm you know I'm I'm not the Angel Brigade is it's a it's a it's a teenage girl thing, and my daughter's not there yet. And then lastly, My Hero Academia. Three releases here, all from Funimation. Uh, all of them pretty terrific. Uh, season four, part one. Uh, season two, uh, and uh, My Hero Academia: Heroes Rising. Uh, 
how this all fits in, My Hero Academia is basically for tween boys, kind of for, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old boys. Um, you know, it's it's villains and superheroes, and uh, it's kids doing amazing things, and I have never been able to make much sense out of the My Hero Academia world how any of this stuff fits together, but it has a huge following, and uh, I'm not going to be the one to uh, pour, pour water on their fire. All right, with that, we have, uh, we've rolled through um, the last of the things that we really uh, had, had room and time for this year. 2020 now comes to an end. The holidays come to an end. We wish everyone a super, super Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, New Year, Happy New Year, whatever holidays remain that we may be overlooking. Uh, Chinese New Year is coming up very soon as well. So um, we like to kind of throw our, uh, throw our cheers out for everyone and everything that makes you happy at this point in time. Um, 2020 has been a difficult year for everybody. It's been hard for us. It's been harder for others. And uh, I would just end this year on this note saying, um, be kind because everyone's fighting a hard battle as the saying goes and uh, count your blessings and spread good cheer wherever you can. And please, by all means, be well, take care of your health and, and be good to others. And with that, we will see you in what will hopefully be a better and more productive 2021. Be good, everybody. Sleepers ring.